Hello, my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to Valari Redis for Duncan Egg. It's the Mystery Night Part 2. Let's see what today brings us, eh, my fellow Westorians? As you can see, if you're watching, and if you're not watching, I'll tell you. Sean of House Beard is sitting next to me. Look at this. Ah, right here. Like, it's like house. old times in the house. And we have, in fact, a studio audience of one. <laughs> Shout out to Rita of the Copper Main over here, our live studio audience. That's right. <laughs> so we're having a, a good time here. In the audience too. Yeah, you're right. There are some cats in the audience. Yep. And there are some of you in the audience as well. Thanks to those of you who are watching live today on YouTube. We do this every Sunday at 3 Eastern. That's our usual. Those of you who come regularly know that. But if you listen on podcast, you might not know that. So I thought I'd throw that out there. Well, Sean, you're here. But that doesn't preclude you from having an inventive beverage that appears to be a strange pinkish color. Looks a little bit like Pepto-Bismol, I'd say. <laughs> I'd say it's closer to purple than pink. The protein berry naked drink. Okay. And orange mango sparkling ice. And, of course, Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew. <laughs> <For the caffeine. laughs> the, the foundation of all <laughs> bearded beverages <laughs> sometimes dr pepper's the foundation yeah that's true that's true you're right you're right tried mountain dew in your coffee. <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> do, I, do people put lemon oh. in coffee is there an orange flavor coffee yeah citrus and coffee yeah. yeah those things happen but not on, we have a coke coffee not in my cup <laughs> <laughs> So thanks as well to Nina, goodqueenally1l.tumblr.com. Over on her blog, she did an interesting post on the way the faith works in terms of local customs and syncretism. Syncretism is, is sort of like mashing religious ideals together, uh, disparate, but perhaps similar, meaning they come from different origins. Like if you take some, like in the modern world, like some aspects of Christianity and Judaism are overlapping or, or have been adopted some one from aspects. the other. Yeah, not so. Yeah, more than a few. So then there's a lot, there's countless other examples like that. And of course, this would, this is a real thing. So it's a good thing, to, a fun thing to explore in terms of Westeros. One example being the, the odd phrase, Lord of Seven Hells, that we heard in the last story, The Sworn Sword. That's a good example of what might be Local customs getting adopted, and that's a form of syncretism. So it's a really cool topic. Uh, as well, I want to shout out our friends over and Facebook and Slack and Discord and all of our places to chat about the episodes, as well as thank you all who come here live to participate. Flick has been having a few problems. If you're one of our regular Flick users, I'm not entirely sure what's going on there. I've been trying to figure it out, but they're doing some transitions with their company, and it's made the site intermittently down so i apologize if those of you who have posted on flick you i know there's some really good questions and takes on there that i haven't been able to access for about two weeks it's come back briefly and i was able to access it for a minute and then it went down again so I, i'm sure it'll be back once we get that settled we'll get y'all's great takes and deliver them here but if you wanted to head over to one of the other sites if the, if the problems linger you certainly have that option and i encourage you to do that thanks as well to those of you who support us on patreon we have been thinking about some changes, trying to revamp the Patreon and maybe do a few things differently. The future is going to change how we do a few things, given new material, things like that. So if you have suggestions, any ideas, now's the time to get them in. But we're still pretty early in the process of figuring these things out. So don't expect any um, anything big to change uh, anytime soon. The Feast. Let's start with the Feast. That's where we left off. And... 
Well, one of the first things you notice, of course, once you get to the food description is it's... It's on. It's on, <laughs> right? We talked earlier in the first book, especially because it was earlier in Martin's writing career, you know, thinking about if we noticed any evolution in his style or whatever. And that was something that at this point is now very clear that he is <laughs> yeah. decided to go on and on with food descriptions. It's just, he is just, it's his thing. Yeah. <laughs> he likes to do it. Now, interestingly, there was something about the wedding pie that Nina noticed that I, I kind of noticed too, but I didn't have a suggestion for what it meant. So we'll go with her interpretation as a possibility. I like it. I'm not sure it's what George meant, but I do like it. So it certainly fits, which is that normally when we see a wedding pie, like, well, Normally, we haven't seen a lot of wedding pies, mm -hmm. but this one's unusual. That there's a bunch of different kinds of birds, whereas before we associate with just doves, right? Like that's how the big wedding pie at uh, the purple wedding was. There's a difference. It's like showing the myriad of options, all the different kind of people. It's more of a mishmash rather than like united thing. It reflects all the different goals and, and uh, aspects of this situation here, all the different personalities. And it's pretty cool. I like that interpretation. Here's a line that is almost, if not entirely, funny on reread. Our first quote of the day. The crowd was larger than Dunk had anticipated, and from the looks of it, some of the guests had come from a very long way had come a very long way. He and Egg had not been around so many lords and knights since Ashford Meadow. There was no way to guess who else might turn up next. We should have stayed out in the hedges, sleeping under the trees. I'm recognized. <laughs> so a lot of layers to that. It isn't just one joke. There's like five jokes in there. <laughs> if. <laughs> yeah, if he's known. First, if he's recognized. Yeah, so that's one thing. It's like, dude, Plum Raven is like, I know who you are, you know? And he's like, and he's kind of was like, you know, you, you're not very incognito. Just all these like hints. It's like, you're very easy to notice. Like, you just can't hide. <laughs> and he has a little notoriety surrounding yeah. him, too, that maybe everyone isn't aware of, but certainly some people are. Uh, he's definitely the only seven foot knight with a bald squire walking around, yeah. right? Like, that is... <laughs> so I, I can go out on a limb and say that. <laughs> I haven't actually checked, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. <laughs> The other thing, though, is it's kind of funny is that they're all Blackfire. I was <laughs> so like, oh, that's yeah. the guy that killed, helped kill Baylor. Actually, you're cool. That might be why he's tired of people crapping on him for being the guy that killed Baylor. He's come to join us. Yeah. It actually looks like it looked like that from the answer, which is Blood Raven's concern, too. He's like, okay, I don't know about this guy. I can yeah. see why he's here. So there's a motive. There's a, there's a, there's a, it's not just random. It looks like he could have a purpose to being there. It does explain some of Blood Raven's. I don't know how to say this, but testing him. Yes, know, some of the yes. questions he asks and comments he makes. We even wondered if Kyle the cat maybe was part of it. Yeah, uh, it, you could see that Blood Raven is trying to trying to place Dunk. Yeah, you know? and I also had mentioned earlier that I was, I don't know, I th I thought it was a little awkward to have Dunk wondering if someone recognized him. I thought it would be obvious that people would recognize him. It almost like bothered me a little how Martin was handling that. But now, again, thinking about it further as we do, right? Certainly a bunch of people did recognize him and it made sense that he was heir to them, right? It wasn't like suspicious or something Dunk needed to fear. Dunk doesn't realize it, but it probably makes him more welcome there yeah. than he might realize. That's a good point, yeah. And that might be worried. Like, he, there's another concern Blood Raven might have. He's like, well, even if he is here by accident, they might recruit him. You know, they might successfully recruit him or something. Like, Blood Raven doesn't know Dunk's personality. We know from Dunk's personality that that's like, Pretty out of the question. Yeah. But they don't, but Blood Raven doesn't know that. Neither do like all these other people here. They don't know Dunk's personality. They don't know him from Adam. They don't know him at all. They In just... fact, Underleaf? 
Yeah, right? Uthor, yeah. Who, who did recognize him. Yes. Right? He wasn't even there, but he still knew who he must be. Yeah. Still, I knew nothing of his character. It was like, hey, join me. Help me uh, set up these bets. You yeah, know, like he, if he knew of his character, he would not have suggested not, like yeah. that kind of, yeah, he's like, no, Dunk would never do that. <laughs> I mean, and, and just more on Baylor, like this is the, the hammer in the hammer and the anvil. Like this is possibly the commander that caused the most deaths. Among like his the leadership. allies of this. So like everyone in this group can lay a death or two at the feet of Baylor and be like, yeah, that guy, like, screw him. You know, <laughs> good job. Good yeah. job make, taking care of him, even though he obviously didn't deal the death blow. It's still the blame is still there. As and we you can also see how the story yeah. might be spread. Everyone isn't going to know all the nuanced details. Yeah. But they might know. Wasn't that the guy? Even someone there that like knew the story might tell someone else. He's the one that got Baylor killed. And they might even know more details, but not say it when they're trying to tell other people, you know? Yeah. So. And I think if Bloodraven had knew right away, if he knew what Dunk's intent was, he would, instead of feeling him out, he would have been just like, dude, you need to leave. Yeah. <laughs> get the hell out of <laughs> yeah. here and take, especially because yeah. you've got him with you. Like, get him and take Egg and go. He, he <laughs> like, might even been willing to reveal his identity or even under the guise yes. of some other identity or intention, kicked him out or yeah. scared him off. Absolutely. I think that's very true. And like he couldn't risk himself just to save Dunk. Yeah. Egg, on the other hand, that's different. But it didn't come to that. It, he already, you know, he managed to not reveal himself. <laughs> so let's have this next quote. We have the one from Maynard Plum talking about this very subject. So, Duncan, you appear to be attracting a deal of attention. Sir Maynard Plum observed as Lord Viril and his party went parading past them toward places of high honor at the top of the hall. Those girls up in the dais cannot seem to take their eyes off of you. Mm -hmm. I'll wager they have never seen a man so big. Even seated, you're half a head taller than any man in the hall. He's like, you're easy to spot. <laughs> you are recognizable. <laughs> Once someone has seen you, they will forever recognize you ever after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Dunk is worrying if you might be right. It's, it's well, he's well past that. Like, there's no, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. really funny. I like, he's like, will they notice me? Like, <laughs> Another thought that uh, I think Reed and I talked about this here, actually, that Blood Raven might be concerned for himself. Mm, All okay. these eyes on Dunk, Blood Raven might be like, my glamour going to hold up? Oh, there's yeah. Really yeah more yeah, attention like on hanging around I thought the... <laughs> there was going to be, right? <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah, he doesn't need to draw attention to the guy he's sitting next to. Like, like yeah, just... Keep looking at the tall, uh, <laughs> handsome guy. Yeah. That's so funny. Uh, so speaking of recognizing people, here comes none other than the future perpetrator of the Red Wedding. Uh, Lord Frey of the Crossing was a lean man, elegant in blue and gray. His heir, a chinless boy of four whose nose was dripping snot. That's pretty evocative and gross. Uh, it co this comes as part of the ceremony. It's accompanied by toasting, led by the father of the bride, this Lord Frey, the, the lean, elegant man, not the snotty son. <laughs> the first toast is really sneaky. He just says, the king, to the king. He doesn't say King Ares. He doesn't say, we just, this leaves it open. It's ambiguous. It can be like, yeah, even Sir Glendon drinks to that because it's the king, right? Like, they get to make their own choice on who that means. Similar to Eustace and other characters. Good call, and, uh, yes. Sworn sore. They were generic about how they talked about the, the rebellion. Yes. fall in the rebellion, you know. That's a very good call, yeah, because there's no, as long as you don't name the side or name names, no one can say you mean otherwise. It's like it's technically not People treasonous get to talk. assume what they want. You know? Yeah. So he's more specific when it comes to toasting the hand. Brendan Rivers, he says, I give you the king's hand, Brendan Rivers. May the crone's lamp light his path to wisdom. I, he's probably wiser than most anyone else in the hall. <laughs> so <laughs> he might already have his, his crone's lamp well lit there. But 
It's like half of the people in the crowd don't drink. It's a huge number. It's, it reminds us a bit of, it reminds me of a lot of Obara and the, that scene in Sunspear through Ario Hotas' point of view in the lot. He's specifically like watching to see who doesn't drink. He's like not drinking himself. He's like, all right, who's going to turn their cups over? He's very, ca- very careful to watch for the, for that. And a lot of them don't even, they're just like, don't, you know, <laughs> like make it as obvious as they can. And some of them just don't drink, but some of them dump their cups out and glendon does that too he's like dumps the whole thing out so dunks this like seems like it'd be dangerous not to drink yes. <laughs> this is a been sitting right next to him <laughs> you know it's an interesting thing to think about too from like a writing perspective this story is it's from dunk's perspective yeah we don't get any stories or whatever out where dunk isn't present however we might be told things that are happening in dunk's presence he doesn't necessarily take note of. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. And it doesn't seem like Dunk was particularly aware of who did or didn't drink, even though we were told as an audience. Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting, too, the way some other people react, like Uthor. Sir Uthor, Underleaf, we'll talk about him more next time. The the snail, there's a lot to say about him. Some people even think he's the more consummate mystery knight than than just about anyone here. Anyway, more, more like I said, more on him later. But he says the right thing <laughs> when, when Glendon's like, I don't drink to a bastard. And he's like, it's like, no, he's not a bastard. He was a uh, legitimized drinks up, you know, <laughs> and uh, that's pretty neat. But what I love, too, is Bloodraven drinks deep himself. He's like, it's a waste of good wine. You yeah, know, he just drinks yeah, himself. Someone else dumped the wine out. It's like, yeah. Waste of good wine. Good waste of wine there. <laughs> Later, when. Everyone is drunk and passed out. Just about everyone is drunk and passed out. Dunk comes back down, and Maynard's like the only one still there. Probably because he's not wasted. Well, not only because he's not wasted, but because he's a spy. Right. I think he's I probably bring good this up later too. in a document, but he's waiting to see who came down for an abetting. Who comes down mm-hmm. with who, specifically. Yeah. Like, imagine if Dunk and the Fiddler had come back down together. Yeah. Right? They didn't end up, but that could have easily happened. Mm. Or Dunk could have never come back down until the next morning. Yeah. Like, there's a lot that he can. He wants to see what happens. By, yeah. yeah, it's who, a great point. Yeah, who comes back through with whom leftover drunken conversations people still have. It makes a lot of sense. He's the last one lingering around as a spy, you know. Yeah, it really does. And Nina and I were joking about this, too. We were kind of talking about it, this this drinking thing. And, and she points out, hey, we're pretty sure the only time he drinks is when it's toasted to him. <laughs> it's the only time he like, explicitly drinks. It's like, all right, I'll drink to me. <laughs> but the rest of the time, I'm like, I don't know. Now, there's some more Red Wedding vibes here. Of course, they're all over. We've we probably won't be able to mention them all because we probably won't catch them all. There's so many good Red Wedding vibes here. It's funny to say good Red Wedding vibes here. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, one of them, of course, is the Lord Frey being right here, the both the, the new and the old Lord Frey. But we also have Lady Verwell crying, which is interesting because the Verwells are one of the more prominent houses here just because they get mentioned a lot, not necessarily because they're a really prominent house out in, in Westeros in terms of their level of power. But the reason for that is, that I think is interesting is at the end of the story, we have a Verwell man bragging that he was one of the spies. Now, he just could have just been a random guy that was bribed and was a spy, but maybe the Verwells were in on it too. Like we, we've wondered that about the phrase. We wondered that about other people like, there's opportunities to betray this thing because it's not well made. So like who wants to back this thing when they can betray it and gain more regard that way? Like, man, that may be a better play than, than going down with the ship is like, well, uh, this is not going to go well. So why don't I uh, get ahead of this and, you know, be on the winning side uh, anyway? So 
The fact that Lady Verwell's crying reminds me of Rosalind, the one who marries Edmure Tully, yeah. right? She's crying during the... And Catelyn just brushes that off as well. Yeah, it's this is terrifying. Like, it's a wedding, you know, like, all these men, like, the betting is coming. She's easily able to ascribe rational reasons why this woman would be crying. But later, we're like, oh, she knew about the massacre. She knew this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no wonder she's crying at her wedding. Like, damn, that's an awful thing to know it's coming and to be, like, trying to maintain your composure and all that. So... My guess is here, maybe Lady Verwell knew as well. And I mean, not that there was a slaughter here, but that it reminds me of that. And given all the other Red Wedding vibes, it feels like that's definitely worth a mention. She could easily be afraid for her future, you know. Taking the wrong side, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. like already it's probably a precarious situation for these brides being betrothed to older men that they don't really know. It's already a tough scenario. But when they're also aware of the idea that it's tied up in a, I don't know, a revolt of sorts... There's a lot of extra uncertainty. Like, at least, even if it's some old dude you don't know or love, at least you'll be secure. But when you yeah, won't yeah. even at least be secure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like you're trading away your all your yeah, all your like your pride and your your personality and your your honor and, and yourself for yeah, for not much. Yeah. <laughs> like if you get comfort and safety, that is at least something. But yeah, you know. I had another thought, by the way, another parallel, potential parallel to the Red Wedding. I'm not sure about this. Okay. But I thought it was odd when they went up for the betting that among the things that Martin described, one of them was the suit of armor in his chambers. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. And it it stood out a little bit to me. I even went back and listened to it because I thought maybe there'd be some description that would like make us realize, oh, that was so-and-so's armor that they wore in some battle or another, but it was very mm. generic. It was like yeah. gold inlaid armor. Just you know, super, super yeah. bling armor. Yeah, but it like... made me think, well, how common would it be to keep your suit of armor in your bedchambers? <laughs> It'd be completely com- common, but maybe he's ready for action. Maybe, yeah. This and guy... it reminds me, I can't quite remember if it played out like this in the book, but in the show, you remember... Caitlin notices that Roos is wearing chainmail. Yeah, that is how it's like. In the show oh too, no! In the books too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder yeah. if that should have been a clue. He's ah, got his armor in his bedchamber. Mm. Something's about to go down. That's interesting. One thing I didn't think of that. It's a cool idea. I, my, for me, it was just like he's setting the sage by describing a bunch of things, which doesn't draw too much attention to one of those things being the privy and all that. But yeah. you know, yeah. if you only point out Red one herring. object in the room, then you know, kind yeah. of focus on that. But we'll get back to that scene in a minute as well. Now, another thing that's cool here is uh, this is not the twins, right? That's the one comparison to the Red Wedding that isn't doesn't carry over, even though there's phrase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's at White Walls, not the twins. And the food is much nicer. We talk about the food description. That's one thing. One of the things you look back on the Red Wedding is like, boy, this food was awful. Like, what is going on with these weird dishes that sound super disgusting? And <laughs> even Rob and Catelyn co- comment on how awful the food is. It's like so weird. But here. Like you said, this is the good stuff, <laughs> or at least it's the really rich sounding stuff. Some of it sounds not that good, actually, but it's not gross sounding like meant to offend people or meant to provoke a reaction. But one thing I really love is Dunk just being good. He thinks of egg. He's like, I wonder if the kid's getting enough food. I better st- stash a chicken in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty Dunk probably has pretty big pockets. I wonder how he could probably stuff a few chickens in there. But I thought it was a fish. I yeah, he stuffed a sure. bunch of things in there. Yeah, but it was yeah, also like a cheese that he specifically said was smelly. Yeah. Like, oh, man, he's going to turn into Venice the Brown. <laughs> yeah, he even said <laughs> that, right? smelling food Compared, That's funny. <laughs> so the food's not a clue to what's going on, in other words. The food is, like you said, it's it's kind of standard George R. R. Martin. Like, go for it. Like, yeah, this is fun. But it's, it's standardness in that sense. It doesn't provide any clues. 
But there are clues elsewhere in this feast. Like John the Fiddler just straight up says this. Uh, I guess you could say the looser he gets looser and looser the more he drinks, which is uh, pretty normal, right? Like people do lose their inhibitions and talk more when they're drinking. And the pretense of who he is kind of starts to slip more and more. Here's a quote. So John the Fiddler proposed the final toast to my brave brothers. I know that they are smiling tonight. <laughs> so to the naive, this may generically mean his brothers in arms, his fellow hedge knights, and it may even give some plausible deniability to Dunk and others, you know, maybe the willing naive. But he does have some specific brothers. Yeah, he does. Yeah, it's true. It's really interesting. And it's like uh, that. It's another one. It's like to his brave buzz, like to the king. Like it's it's still very vague. Right. <laughs> but once you're on the clue, it's like, oh, he's talking about the two that he saw dead in his dreams. You know, Aegon and Aemon slain on the red grass field. They mocked him for this and then they were killed. And at that point, he was young. He was only seven years old. We don't know how many dreams he had had that had come true. Probably that wasn't the first one. But at that one was almost certainly one of the biggest ones. He's like, wow, that came true. And over time, now he says he's 22. You got to figure by now, over age 22, he's probably had a lot of his dreams come true. So he's just got more and more confidence in this, even though he got this one wrong and other aspects of it wrong. He has a reason to trust his dreams. He's not crazy. That is interesting to think about, especially we, we talked a lot about uh, dreams and how that it might affect your outlook on life, prophetic dreams specifically. I, I remember in the first book I had in my notes, I had, what other dreams has Daron had? And in this one I had, what other dreams has Daemon had? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, right, yeah. And uh, it is, th the, the ones that are brought to our attention are these sort of big, sweeping, you know, kingdom-changing, potentially, yeah. dreams, right? Uh, you know, a prince is going to die or a dragon's going to hatch or something like that. And those also maybe are the ones that are tougher to interpret or more likely to change someone's life course. But you imagine they might be reinforced if you've had a bunch of smaller dreams, which also, like many prophecies, could be misleading. Like you dreamed you were going to have eggs for breakfast. Well, <laughs> odds are you will eventually have eggs for breakfast, but yeah. it happens to happen the next day, especially if several of your dreams happen relatively quickly afterwards, it might make you assume that the dragon hatching is also going to happen relatively quickly afterwards. Yeah. And you don't know that it's meant 70 years later or whatever, you know, so. And there's details, too, like, that lacking, like, maybe for all we know in the dream, like, he saw more detail that, that came true, like, there, like, arrows or something like that. Some other, like, detail that, that came true that, or they just didn't make it into the, you know, into the text here. Uh, but think about Bloodraven, Plumraven, sitting here, hearing that quote, like, you mean the guys I shot down? Like, I did that, you know. <laughs> Those brothers? <yeah. laughs> Am I going to have to do that to you as well? Don't make me shoot you down, too. Or better yet, since I didn't bring my bow, we'll do something different this time. <laughs> so he probably <laughs> felt pretty confident, too. He's like, yeah, this dude, he's just, if he's just going to blurt this out, like, this gives me confidence that these guys are not, like, as serious about this as they need to be. So he's probably like, all right we can take this down without getting too crazy. He, yeah. can, he can undermine it rather than he can cause it to collapse in on itself. It's like it a, doesn't necessarily have to come to a violent head. Yeah. Like almost no one dies. Like there's only a few deaths, right? Like the, the Verwell guy <laughs> and then the executions afterwards and black Tom. And, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's like, it's a bloodless rebellion. That's why some people put rebellion in quotes on this one, because is it, did it really get going far enough to be that for shorthand? We call it that. It's the second Blackfire Rebellion. But like when you really get down to it, it's like, eh, this was the second Blackfire up 
uptick or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Not even an uprising. I was about to say uprising, or, and that wasn't even yeah conspiracy. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah, conspiracy because never went be. It never. It, it got very. That's fun. For, he's like, yeah, this is this will be easy to undermine because there's so many holes and so many, so many people not getting what they wanted. So many flaws in this situation here that he can he can exploit those flaws would against you, the conspirators. Would you say they were fomenting? <laughs> <laughs> he's going to turn this whole thing into a black fire, black hole. Yeah. Yeah. So Nina notes this phrase, our true king across the water. Now, this is a, a pretty important historical uh, context parallel here, which is the Jacobite rebellion. The Jacobites are most likely the main inspiration for the Blackfires, if not a very heavy inspiration for them due to the number of, of overwhelming parallels that come here that just seems likely that George drew a lot from this. There were the legitimate male line descendants of James II, driven out of Britain by the so-called Glorious Revolution to show secret support for the Jacobite claimants, James the second, his son, James Francis Edward Stewart. That's four first names. <laughs> James Francis Edward Stewart and his two sons, Charles Edward Stewart and Henry Benedict Stewart. Their supporters in Britain would raise a toast to the king while holding their cups over a glass or bowl of water. So over they would hold it over water to kind of symbolize they were toasting to the king across the water. And that's pretty neat here. So. A different continent. Now, the we have the hunchbacked Septon case from last time or from earlier. And uh, he's more explicit in his support for the Blackfires and these secret Jacobite toasts. But there's a difference between how nobles are and how, you know, street preachers. Like, <laughs> it's just it's a different thing, right? Different, uh, different mindset there. Nina notes, very cool here. Glendon even holds his, when the, when the toast comes, the one he, he holds his wine cup, but he holds it out over the water basin. So he's toasting over the water. He's doing that same thing. So this is why Nina can say with confidence that this is a, a strong historical parallel. I did not catch this on my own. So shout out to her for that one. That's really good. Uh, even more of this, we'll, we'll, we're going to do an even uh, uh, extended rundown of the Jacobites at the end of this episode. It'll be like the last topic. So kind of our outro topic. So if you're curious, a little more on that will be at the end. Um, but a little more, enough different sort of clue that the Fiddler is from overseas comes from this line. The Fiddler smelt of oranges and limes with a hint of something strange. With a hint of some strange eastern spice beneath. A hint of some yep. strange eastern spice. I mean, that word specifically. It was a, <laughs> this was like a, such a good little bit here because it, one, it, it's another indication that the fiddler is not just a hedge knight. He even says in other points, God, I know where Butterwell's kitchens are. You know, like yeah. he's just getting whatever he wants. He's getting the best food. He can get it whenever he wants. You know, he has free reign of this castle. He's not just some hedge knight. Yeah. But furthermore, he's not from here. He's from the <laughs> east. You know, yeah. it was really good. Yeah. And, and that's another thing, too, is it's, it's a clue as well with his wealth. Like strange eastern spices, guaranteed they're expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever yeah. the spice is, it's expensive. Yeah. Another so, indication of wealth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but nothing stands out more than these giant amethyst necklace on his chain. Like, what? <laughs> like, and it says it brings out the color in his eyes, which is like, okay, so he has purple eyes there. He like, even thinks he has egg's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and some of these clues are not very sneaky. They're like, whoa, you're, you're not, and they're not supposed to be. Like, these guys aren't being cautious, right? That's the point. It's part of the point here. And, if he was really cautious, he should have gouged his own eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> should have worn a mask. I look, you know. Amethyst is also a really striking color for Targaryen eyes that we've seen. It's not usually just, sometimes it's just purple. Like they say purple, but the main colors are like lilac, violet, 
and Amethyst. And Amethyst is the one that, to me, personally, really stands out because it's gemstone. It sounds like the gemstone emperors and all that. So it really just sounds out their royalty, their like their prestige because of the the that's the one that has, implies the most wealth. You know, like violets are flowers and lilacs are flowers and purple is yeah. just a color generic. But amethyst is a, a rare gemstone. It's okay. yeah, it's something else. Here's another irony. Glendon is a contrast to Damon and Bloodraven. Now, De- Glendon very like exaggeratedly, vehemently asserts his that his heritage. It was weird that he is so uh, tells people that he's legitimate because that's just impossible. Like, there's no way he was legitimate. Yes, he could be Quentin Ball's son, but there's no way he's not a bastard. Yeah, <laughs> there's just that's just it's odd, almost odd that he pushes this because there's no one's going to believe him. He's it's impossible to believe. It's it's kind of a a strange claim, but it just goes to show how fired up he is, how much he wants to be like his father figure. And that's a recurring theme here. It's a really important thing. The, the father figure theme here is huge. Tyrion said it really well. We dance on the strings of those who came before us, especially when your fathers are powerful lords that have thousands of years of heritage and history that they're proud of, that they're trying to keep. And Gorm- guys like Gorman Peak, his father isn't really mentioned, but <laughs> he had three castles and lost them and like his house had these castles for thousands of years and he's the guy that lost them and it's like that's of all the peaks you're the, you're the one that <laughs> lost the castles you know and here we have John the Fiddler trying to claim to be a landless hedge knight but he's still seated up there <laughs> with all the like famous families and everything and he doesn't have the aristocratic credentials openly that Gwenton Ball is claiming to have or Glendon Ball is claiming to have. He's like, well, if he's the son of Fireball, he should be up there. Yeah. <laughs> but this guy who has no name at all is just like, yeah, I know where the kitchens are. You know, I can do whatever I want. It's just like when you really get into it, it's like, wow. Yeah, this is so uneven. It just tells you something's going on here. And and it's really fun to just dig into that. There's got to be a little bit of uh, a lot of men involved around this point, probably on yeah. all sides because even damon on some level he seems oblivious to how the 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 pairings are being set up too oh, that make yes sense? yes he does so not until the end does he figure until he's told he, yeah. he might not know that much about tournaments but they just don't come you'll win this thing da, 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 and he might point, not yeah. necessarily know how much he's being set up for failure you might be assuming more about the potential success or competence of the people involved. That's a good point. And because he does seem to be overly confident about this. His know? dreams. Yeah, he's really relying yeah. on his dreams. Yeah. And he doesn't know. Yeah, he does. You're right. He doesn't know these people. He doesn't know Gorman Peak that well. He doesn't know yeah. Butterwell. These and, are people he met within the last month. And they seem to be surprised. He doesn't even have the sword. Is he his father's son? Yeah. No, they, they don't know. This is not that we've said many times. Not the best coordinated thing. You can see <laughs> it from a lot of different angles. <laughs> Now some mirroring comes from this moment as well. John the Fiddler, as as much as we say he's not his father's son, he does have some of the skills, right? He he knows how to talk. He has easy charisma. He has charm. And this is why we made comparisons to Renly. Because this is something Renly's really good at. You see that like Renly wasn't on screen a super long time, like uh relatively speaking to the size of the series, but in that time, one thing he had was the ability to win people over. Like unquestionably that was a power that's a powerful trait when you're a leader too especially in a spot like this when you're trying when it's like one king versus another like the one with more charisma it's a pretty big tool in your arsenal to to help get the edge the manpower advantage or to bring people to your cause when they're not sure if they're on the fence 
well, I kind of like that guy more, you know, <laughs> like if it's a, if it's a close call, go with the the friendlier guy, the, the one who might do you better in the long run, like be a better lead. You might think that's a sign of a better leader. Now, we know that's not necessarily a sign of a better leader in the long run. And in fact, in this case, John's being a bit dishonest because he says to Glendon Ball's like, I would never want to give offense to a son of Fireball. But later on, he's just like he, he calls him Fireball's bastard, mm-hmm. you know, so he's yeah. like. This is just to win him over, right? Like he's and he's also drunk here. But. <laughs> <laughs> so but it but it works. You see how well it works. Like Glendon's like his pride is up. He's angry. He's just he's prickly is a good word here. And where he's constantly getting hammered, people mocking him like, you're not this, you're not that. So when Glendon comes over and he's like irked because John's like, I'm going to win the dragon's egg. And John's like, your your boasting is unseemly. He's like, truly, I would never want to give offense to a son of fireball. And he's like. Whoa, <laughs> it's hard to stay mad after yeah. he compliments you. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's he was ready to like argue again because that's all he's like most of what he's been doing is picking small fights and, and getting into he arguments has and getting mocked. He kind of has a chip on his shoulder. That's right? a great way to put it. A ball on his shoulder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the fiddler is almost like, look, man, you don't need this chip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really it's really smooth. It's like this is a good this is a good like leadership trait here to be like diffuse the situation like and and this is something like an ambassador something varis would do like just smooth it out he would know exactly what to say to get the guy to be unangry because he knows he he's he reads him and can see what what's bothering him and he knows like the pressure point to hit to like alleviate that i want to give him credit i want to give uh damon credit for being brave too yeah he is toward the end yes but i also at the same time i i can't decide i for one, brave isn't binary, right? You're not just brave or not brave. Yeah. But I'm thinking about the Ned Stark quote where you have to be scared first yeah. to really be brave. That's true. I don't think he's ever really scared. He just, he's kind of naive. He just assumes this is all going to work out. He assumes he's the better jouster. He assumes that the rebellion's going to work. Yeah. And even when he's like clearly kind of lost his allies and an army surrounding him, he's still willing to charge forward and fight. But I think it's more out of naivete yeah. than bravery. You know? Yeah, you wonder what. I really, really wonder. And this is something I'd love to hear from you all about, too. There's a it's a it's a complete mystery of a mystery night. What happens afterwards? We don't know when Damon II dies in captivity. It's clear that he did because he never wasn't in captivity as far as we know. But was he assassinated in prison? Did he become depressed because he was like, holy crap, I was wrong about so much and just withered away and died like it's who knows? We have no idea. But I really wonder, like, you know, he did die. Yeah, he had and to have died. Is a captive or like Probably. Is, there, is it possible that he became a trusted advisor to the court? Nah, no, nah, Blood Raven would never have stood for that. He's just so anti-Blackfire. We know that the next Blackfire rebellion was in 219. Um, Hagon, the one that Blood Raven refers to at the end. He's like, well, he's like, well, are they going to kill him? He's like, well, if you kill him, then they'll just crown Hagon. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I suggest an assassination in prison, because if they can assassinate him in prison, then they can do that. But but it's also possible they just were like, screw it. Let's crown Hagon anyway, and then they'll execute the hostage and, or whatever. Who knows what they'll do? But it's a complete mystery. We have no idea. And I think that's because George intentionally wrote around it because he wants to include it in a future Duncan Egg story and doesn't want to delve too far into it until he's decided what he wants to do. He doesn't want to write himself into a corner. Exactly. And we know that's how George operates. So like even it's a hugely important event in the world of ice and fire kind of yada yada is over. He's like, "Ah, we all know of the great events that happened. Like, do we No, we don't. He's like, (laughs) you, ah." but that's also a sign that he's saving it. Right. So, yes. Yeah. 
So yeah, so this this line, it's great. He it's it's hard to imagine a better thing for Damon to have said there. He's trying to recruit people. He wants m- as many men on his side as possible. So what's the point? Of, so picking a fight with this guy is no good. Yeah, win him over, and it deflates Ball hearing this line. Ha. And Bloodraven just saw this happen too. So Bloodraven's sitting right there, seeing this easy charisma in action. He's probably like, yeah, don't let that ball get rolling. Yeah, we can't have that get out there and have this charisma just shine and recruit people and, and let people say, "Ooh, I like him. Just don't let that get going. Right. Don't let that snowball become an avalanche. Right. Better keep the ball in your court. You know, by <laughs> the way, it's also another parallel. Bleh, parallel. Pl- parallel. Rinley, yes. A, a rare Renly Lil. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> same thing. You wonder how brave was Renly and how naive was Renly. Yes. Caitlin even says, like, he's just playing around. He doesn't realize how many people he's about to send to their deaths. You yeah, know? same. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, these are just like, like, you don't know the way Damon was raised. He was raised probably in, well, almost certainly in Tyrosh, probably with relative wealth. And we know that we, we suspect the Blackfire's wealth situation started to collapse at some point, but it may not have yet. After all, he comes over with all this bling. So, like, they're clearly not destitute yet, if that indeed does happen later, which seems not unlikely. He, he hasn't even lived in Westeros. He doesn't know the, the plight of the common people, probably even of Tyrosh, let alone <laughs> this continent yeah. he's never been yeah. to until a few months ago or what have you. So, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a, a very uh, closed, sheltered. Like, sheltered, exactly, sheltered kind of upbringing, a combination of privilege and sheltered mm-hmm. that, that prevents him from seeing the truth of the world. And it's, it is kind of tragic, too, because he does seem in a lot of ways like a decent guy. Maybe a lot of that is just an act. Maybe he doesn't like just his, his, his cover, his face. He's good at putting on that face. But I don't know if he had been raised differently. Yeah, he might have been a decent person that wasn't just fired up to do this Half ridiculous thing. Half the characters claim. that have been in charge in one way or another, we'd rather be subbed out with this guy. We'd rather have him the Roos. We'd Probably. rather have him than Tywin. We'd yeah. rather have him than Joffrey. We'd rather have him than... Good point, know. yeah. So the specific line that's really important here, too, he says is, you are your father's son, I hope, when Damon says that. And that's... By the way, another line that Bloodraven would kind of internally like raise an eyebrow at, like, mm? <laughs> you know, but that again is the hu- hits on the huge father's son influence here, which is a big deal. Like a lot of these characters never met their father. Dunk never met his father. Glendon Ball knows of his father, but didn't meet him, wasn't raised by him. It's just like he's an image. He's an icon, like a, you know, just a, a thing to live up to, but without the specific personality details, without the, the direct impact. He's more of a concept. Yeah, a con- yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, very good. And and like Blood Raven, like how much was he raised by Aegon the Unworthy? Pfft, not very, not much at all. Especially because the dude was dead when he was nine, and he was not much of a father. It kind of contrasts him like Tywin, who was also a bad father, but in a very different way, like an aggressive, like I'm in your face, I'm making you feel bad about who you are. Kind of whereas Aegon the Unworthy is just like sloppy and cruel and you know, casual, just doesn't care. He seems like the absentee father type where Tywin's like the, I wish he would leave me alone for a minute with his demands and his <laughs> like living up to him, like living up to Aegon the Unworthy is like, well, you don't want to live up to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like no one wants to be like that guy. So sometimes uh, you learn how not to be from your parents or right, parent yeah. figures or whatever. So just like this whole list of like almost everyone here has like, you could say they have father issues, like their father was either not present or terrible. Most of them just not present. And with Lord Peak, like I said, we don't know, but he has the same sort of like heritage to live up to, which was almost certainly beat into him. And given the recurrence of how members of House Peak being kind of villainous, like 
most houses are gray. The peaks have been sort of like, ah, eh, the peaks are mostly villainous. They're, I can't think of a single non-villainous peak. There's some that are just, I don't know. There's neutrals and bads, and there's no good peaks <laughs> that we know of yet. Uh, and then, so Dunk's father figure is Arlen, right? Like that's, when you, when you don't have a father, you still have father figures sometimes, and that's, that's, that's an important uh, dichotomy here. Just because you're not someone's biological father, you can still be a very play the role just as well, right? There's nothing that says that just because you don't share this person's DNA, you can't have a really great relationship. Dunk does often think about uh, Arlen, and it was in this same area here that he thinks, well, I better have another wine or ale or whatever. Sir Arlen always said, never pass one up when you have a chance, you know? Yeah. And he did add in, it might be a year before you get another, but several of his memories of Arlen were touched by alcohol you know yeah that's true that's a good point you're right because we talked about that like maybe not so much at the end maybe he's drinking too much at the end which you know maybe if he's in pain and dying or is giving up on life or something and yeah i even like consider maybe he was an alcoholic which maybe that's going too far but one even someone who's an alcoholic may just not have access to alcohol except for once a year when they go to some tournament or some lord or something or maybe you're not alcoholic but when you do get it it's still a fun time to drink it when it's there i don't know but but dunk also does at least at one point think forget now but he's observing someone else drinking from his skin and he's like Wine if he's not wise water if he is he doesn't (laughs) understand alcohol can mess you up you know very and, true. And as it messes him up, <laughs> he's not thinking quite straight through a lot of this. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> he's already not a great intriguer, but a, a <laughs> drunk intriguer, he's particularly helpless. But makes for a good um, POV for us just to kind of get the get the straight dope without <laughs> any uh, over analysis from the POV character. <laughs> yeah, in a way, it almost makes him more reliable. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's not he's not an unreliable narrator. He's just totally just seeing what's happening. Yeah, and in just, some ways, he's <laughs> unreliable because he's drunk or, yeah. you know, any human is going to be unreliable to some level. But he's his thoughts aren't skewed by opinions. We're just getting his observations. He's too drunk to form an opinion or to come to a conclusion or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you can, at one point too, you can actually even say like the whole reason all these people are here are because of the actions of their fathers and because they're all lords and just they're living up to something that's been established for a very long time. It's really hard for us to fathom this in the modern times. We like a, a family history that goes back thousands of years like that's just, just yeah it doesn't really i can't <laughs> you know yeah. like i have i'm sure you could trace my ancestors back that far if the data was available but like i wouldn't feel a connection to them because there's no like unbroken line of like we've all lived in the same castle since then yeah. you know like yeah. <laughs> my aunt like they like the peaks will have like a sword sitting in there somewhere in their castle that like this sword was wielded like a thousand years ago by someone in our family and it's like man i cannot fathom what it's like to touch an artifact that uh, your own ancestor wielded in battle like right outside the door <laughs> it is part <laughs> you know? of the reason why america was sort of this this new world this dream the american dream is you weren't tied down to just what your family owned before like the land of europe has been lived in so much longer there's a lot of less yeah. new of it right yeah so you were kind of destined to just do what your father did on your father's land you come to That's america true. there's new options but it also means in america like the oldest buildings here are only a few hundred years old. The oldest families here, like new families were made, new names, yeah. new, new stakes or whatever were created relatively new. So point. the idea, even if you did go back thousands of years, 
going back to Europe, it doesn't matter as much to your life or your accomplishments. Even your father's are going to be less meaningful to us in this world this time than it was to them. Yeah, well said. Another thought I had earlier, by the way, just thinking about the different clues that Dunk or someone might have keyed in on. Dunk, when Dunk leaves this, eventually he goes back to Egg. It's telling them, this is a traitor's tournament. It's like, no, it's not. They're not traitors. Maybe a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Egg just flat out says it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even he is still not necessarily thinking this is a traitor's tournament. I don't think he realizes how right he is, actually. It just kind of looks as like, he's like, I was talking to the squires, and every single one of them is like, <laughs> like Blackfire, because they're not as good as keeping their mouth shut, probably. They don't understand the reasons. They're not in on it, so they don't know what to say and what not to say, and they just kind of have the vibe, and they it's kind of easy to just like, man, everyone here is a <laughs> It's like, but Dunk wouldn't necessarily know that because he's not as cognizant of who fought for what side. It's another thing, too, though, as you go back and reread it, or re-re-re-read it, or wherever yeah, you're at, George is really just hammered it in. Like, <laughs> you have to realize by now, right? And I guess, well, how about now do you realize it? <laughs> so George uses some even... Some perhaps under the radar uh, connection to move one scene to another here. When the conversation shifts away from the marriage details and into the wedding pie, bird defecation, Dunk takes a cue from the birds and leaves to go relieve himself. <laughs> and it's perhaps the most interesting trip to the bathroom he'll ever make. So he goes out there, you he know, got he, low expectations. As you <laughs> he, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm selling him short there. I mean, <laughs> Dunk maybe has a lot of interesting trips to the bathroom. How but, could you? ever sell dunk short oh <laughs> well point well point <laughs> he pulls down his trousers does his business but he also in addition to emptying his bladder he also drops some eaves quite a few <laughs> eaves he's dropping eaves all over the place and he hears right away something that he doesn't understand but it's pretty easy to understand from even a first-time reader's perspective if they know anything about blackfire stuff which they would have, would have been introduced by now uh, a key problem for the conspirators being the lack of the sword yeah blackfire so here's the quote old milkblood expected a boy to have it and so will and so will all the rest glib words and charm cannot make up for that a dragon would the prince insists the egg will hatch he dreamed it just as he once dreamed his brother's dead a living dragon will win us all the swords that we would want. A dragon is one thing, a dream's another. I promise you, Blood Raven is not off dreaming. We need a warrior, not a dreamer. Is the boy the is the boy his father's son? Just again, is the boy his father's son? Just that same line, like really close together. In fact, that's one of the reasons Dunk even thinks that. He's like, are they talking about Fireball Son? Are they talking? About it's like yeah. he's so drunk. He just is like, <laughs> like, no, they definitely don't give a crap about him. Although they will later because he's so stubborn. But at this point, he's still just ah, that silly kid in there, that I mean, angry because boy. He's so right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now, okay, so. This is one of the reasons we mock this plan is not just bad, but wishful uh, because banking on this dream to be accurate. Boy, that is just putting all your. Yeah, again, eggs in one basket. Ha ha. <laughs> but if he's right, though, you can see that. Yeah. If the egg hatched, if a real dragon did hatch here, that he's right. That would be a huge deal. People would be like, OK, that's this is a legitimate Targaryen or a legitimate. Like, this is the real thing. Like, that's more than the sword. Like, that proves a lot more, doesn't it? Like, I, if the first dragon hatched in like 60 some years, that would be like, holy crap. That might even be enough to make Bloodraven or even uh, how would Ares respond to that? Because Ares is the one that expects the dragons to hatch. He's yeah. the one that rediscovered the prophecy. Would yeah. he like realize it and step down? Okay, fine. I guess you're the one. 
Or would he, uh, would there have just been another rebellion? More people might have been one to the Black Forest out of that rebellion if he had a real dragon. He might have won. I guess they might have had to wait for the dragon to grow up is another factor. It's a problem. Maybe they try to act quick. Kill it, maybe. Get the dragon. If he kills it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that Blood would be Raven something. Dragon Slayer. Wow, yeah, that's a different kind of kin slaying. <laughs> Jesus, part dragon himself, right? So yeah, so we've seen enough prophetic dreams throughout a song of ice and fire to only know that to to know to be very wary of them. I mean, it's also just true in other fantasy shows or books or whatever. Like yeah. prophecy, pretty much never is completely accurate. And there's times where it is pretty close to accurate, though. That there isn't a whole lot of like we were wrong. You know, sometimes it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. But not in the Song of Ice and Fire. Very very well. That table's been well set ahead of time. They don't know better. They haven't read the books. <laughs> These conspirators. They don't know crap about prophecy. This is all. They're new to this, I think. Like, when have they delved with magic before? Like, it seems like this is not their normal business. Like, they're knights and lords and masters of the battlefield and taxation and cruelty, you know, <laughs> that kind of yeah. stuff. They're not, this is totally outside of their sphere of understanding, I think. Uh, you know, and you know, like, it's kind of a recurring thing when someone says, Is this a problem? And someone says, Let me worry about that. That pretty much means yes. Yeah. That pretty much means yes. That's a problem. That's a That's, problem. Yeah. <laughs> this it's a is, problem I don't want to admit to. It's a problem I hope to be able to handle, but it's a problem. This is no exception to that. Uh, so to be fair, we don't actually know Damon Blackfire's personality super well. It would be fair to say this is not the action that we would think from him you know like this th- we talked about this before like being up late drinking and all that but the the charisma though you know the the bringing people to his side that stuff maybe that might be they may be leaning on that too much they might be seeing that and being like yes he you know he's got that going for him but yeah we've no idea yeah, the rest though i don't know you know another observation i made maybe i'm skipping ahead but it's especially that interaction on the roof when is it Peak that comes up on a roof yes. and Duncan for the attack? Yeah, we're going to get to that near the end of the episode, too. It almost seems like he's a prisoner. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, he's like, no, you come like, with me. You got to come with us and do yeah, this. He yeah, he comes up with guards. It's time to go to your room. It's He's, again... A puppet. Yeah, kind yeah, of a puppet. A puppet, mm-hmm. at least, if not a prisoner. Yeah. But 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 they can't have him be too much of a puppet, or then he's not... Like, if he's his father's mm-hmm. son, then how much of a puppet can he be? Yeah, it's like, you can see, like, how much of the the wishful thinking comes in here because it's like oh this works because of this factor despite these other mitigating factors <laughs> and he's like yeah and this works because of this and it just it, looking at it with blinders on like not like looking at the positive side without seeing all these huge negatives just coming all over the place and so you know they, they're risking their necks for this some of them maybe are more realistic or concerned or about the process than others yeah um and so they want to keep him in check. And, and you know, even Robert gets drunk and people have to steer him around or whoever. It's not that uncommon, you know. Yeah. But, um, uh, but it is, I think, worth noting, at least in a pretty private revealing conversation when the, the, the plot is kind of being revealed more definitively to Dunk. Yeah. A little later on. But he says, then the throne and Dunk interrupts, says, we'll be yours. Says, we'll be Damon's. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. be mine. Uh, <laughs> but if I can control him and, you know, yeah. <laughs> but he does clarify at a point that doesn't necessarily need it. Right. Dunk. Yeah. So it is interesting that he does have some sense of honor or etiquette or something about this. But yeah. Anyway, I'm skipping around a little too much. That's mm-hmm. fine. That's fine. It's good. Um, it's a, it's funny, too, that Tom Heddle says, I promise you, Blood Raven is not off dreaming. Yeah, he's right there in the next room <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> drinking Couldn't your wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's, it's, it's also kind of ironic, too, because he will be off dreaming much later. Like, that's the thing they say when he's in the trees. That's the phrase. It's like in a, in a, a tall, a pale lord sat dreaming. It's like this very evocative phrase when Bran first encounters him in his tree seat there. And it's dreaming is the phrase used repeatedly. And then Bran, of course, joins this cadre of dreamers, uh, these ancient dreamers. And it's, so well played, George. Good said. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. It's, it's kind of like they can't find a happy medium here. You know, I'm wearing my the gang uh, goes to Ice and Fire Con shirt here. So it's a, it's appropriate to bring bring up like a it's always sunny joke where they're like you go from it's like, well, can we uh, can try to be sneaky with this phrase? And no one gets it. It's like, OK, cocaine. I'm trying to sell you cocaine, <laughs> you know, like. Just you, go there's over a, the top. There's a happy medium in there somewhere. You didn't have to go straight from the most obscure, unidentifiable clue to straight cocaine, you know, <laughs> like just somewhere in the middle. Find a happy medium. Like, why believe these dreams are worthless? Why believe these dreams are everything? Like there's somewhere, you yeah. know, <laughs> it's like these dreams could just be powder. Yeah, <laughs> they, there might be something to it, but maybe just consider other interpretations like it's not. You know, like just think about it. So and it's like if Tom Heddle were in charge of this, like he's the one that seems more rational about it. Like he, if he were in charge, this rebellion might be more serious. It might be more it might be something to take more seriously. But black Tom Heddle is even though he's sort of presented like an equal in this conversation, he's obviously not. He's a Castellan. Whereas Gorman Peak is a great lord. The Peaks are a really powerful house, so uh, less powerful than they were, but <laughs> even less so after this. But <laughs> but potentially would have been more so after this. Yes, like, if they have, had succeeded, they would have been like... They moved up to, I don't know, maybe not Lannister level, but... Close, though, yeah. Like, that that level, I think, is you're not, you're not exaggerating by saying that. So, a good thing for, you know, the other side that uh, Peak was in charge. It's like, c'est la vie, or should I say, c'est la Peak. Uh, the sword too, but the sword is really important. So that's why the lack of bitter steel is really important as well, because bitter steel was such a huge part of keeping this whole thing alive while like keeping the whole Blackfire cause going overseas for the past 17 ish years. Like th that's how long it's been since the first rebellion, right? Or 17, 15, something like that. It's it's the dates are close to that we'll call it close to that anyway as long as the Afghanistan war. Yeah, right. That going. <laughs> it's, it's wild, right? And this isn't even a war. This is just it's out there. It could happen. You know, you got these claimants. They're over there. Like, what are they doing? Are they going to come with an army? Do they even have an army? At this point, they don't. The Golden Company gets formed like pretty much right after this. It might be Bittershield's reaction to all this it might be like. <sighs> going to have to get this more. It's going to take this even more seriously. Like, because if these guys were so unserious, I'm going to have to get even more serious. <laughs> so it is really important, though, like that. He says we need the sword. And it's not just because it's an important symbol of legitimacy. It's their symbol of legitimacy so much of what the blackfire cause people who took damon's side were because the king gave him the sword like the king gave him the sword the king gave damon blackfire the sword that proved he was worthy that's the targaryen sword it was very symbolic it was like he intended for him to be king that's what that's what uh eustace says right that's yeah. his line he's like this proves it you know so not having that sword is a huge like whiff right like oh it's hard to man fail fail <laughs> <laughs> So he can still prove who he is, like with his purple eyes and his all this other stuff. His name is Damon. But like without that sword, yeah, you just. Yeah, even mm. if he even if people completely believe who he is, they still don't like everyone completely believed who uh, 
Ares yeah. was, you know. There's but no they, doubt here, yeah. But mm-hmm. they still, well, he's got the sword. Like, we know who one or the other <laughs> is, but some people are still choosing the sword over the lineage, you know. Yeah, yeah, because it's what they got behind in the first place. It's like, yeah. well, they'll stay, they'll stay behind this. And so that's why it's so wishful, because this guy, Peek, uh, Nina calls Peek a gambler, which I think that's a good phrase here. He's gambling on all these factors working. He's like, it might no, be a of good course. gamble, to be fair. It might be in some some of the parts of it. Like some of the, some of the gambles are bad here, but some of them are accurate, I think, at least in some way. Like, yeah, if, it, if the ball gets rolling, if they win, if they get going, he's right. Other lords will join them. That's that is tends to be how it goes. But he might be wrong about just how quickly it will happen. He might be too optimistic about which ones will join because he's like, yeah, the, the Lothstons will come. They'll come. They'll join our sides. At the end, the Lostons are behind Bloodraven showing up to shut them down. Like, mm, would they? are you sure they would have taken your side if they were so quick to come against you here? Like, yeah. maybe, maybe like they might have been. But it's, it's, it's sketchy for sure. So I could say here, uh, you know, the old phrase, loose links sink ships. Loose lips. What did I say? You loose links. Loose, did I? Wow, that's <laughs> hilarious. Okay. Loose lips sink ships. <laughs> <laughs> Easy for you to say. Yeah, no, yeah, apparently not. And going back to our friend Ario Hota, who we cited during the toasting scene, he said it's conspiracies that require secrecy. Conspiracies that don't require a lot of secrecy are another thing, but conspiracies that require secrecy and a lot of people involved. Ugh, not someone gonna, always tells. Someone, always, that's right. It. Someone always tells. That's right. I think about that a lot too about conspiracy theories in the real world. Like, there's no way this many people. Like, even if they were all that competent, you know, to actually organize and make some conspiratorial plan, like, there's no way they could keep it secret. Like, I mean, th- this doesn't necessarily prove anything, but it's not. Or Hotep said, "I have this idea in my mind." Benjamin Franklin said, three people can keep a secret." If two of them are dead. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You just accidentally say things or that even indicate if you don't exactly straight up tell the secret, like you don't realize someone's listening or that you're implying something that's there. And when dozens of people have to be involved, <laughs> you know, even if they're all careful, there's just no way to keep it a secret. And it's worse when you have. So, so it's hard to keep a secret. But now you have. Bloodraven infiltrating your organization with spies <laughs> and literal magic. Now, try maintaining secrecy with that in yeah. place on top of the natural difficulties of keeping secrets. I mean, whew. I mean, these guys are barely trying, though, in some cases. He's just walking around like talking conspiracy out yeah. in the open. Like, yeah. can't you hear this guy peeing? Like, he's got to be loud. <laughs> he's a big man. <laughs> he cut it short. He cut it short. <laughs> <laughs> so not only do we have John the Fiddler just Unable to contain himself in more ways than one, really. <laughs> this, this dude's just like ah, bursting at the seams. He's the nudge, nudge, wink, wink guy from Monty Python. Eric Idle's character is like, nudge, nudge. Mean, eh? yeah, hey, like hey. it's like not subtle innuendo, like the least subtle possible. <laughs> you know, he's like his referring to his dead brothers is a dead giveaway to anyone who's paying attention. Like, and he was not paying attention. It's like, yeah, that comment means very little. But some people might kind of from a distance not like this sort of plot device where someone just accidentally overhears a secret plot and i get that like that is a little weak but it's not the thing i the thing that george does here though is it's not crucial this is not the undermining of the plot dunk overhearing this doesn't affect hardly anything and as we've already said many times this this thing was doomed well before this without them (laughs) this is purely a device to show the reader what's happening because we because of the pov style you can't get in the plotter's heads the only thing that can happen here is someone telling him or overhearing there's just yeah there's no gorman peak's head to get into i think it's very well done by martin Uh, you know we've touched on it a bunch of times but giving us a bunch of information 
that Dunk is witness to, even if he doesn't exactly notice it or piece it together and getting him drunk makes it more uh, believable or yeah. whatever. And and it's also a good, uh, I appreciate this technique of presentation. Okay, here's something that bothers me a lot with not just like eavesdropping, but a lot of plot devices that are basically chance and coincidence. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, yes. Resolving a plot. I think it's fine for chance and coincidence to set up a plot, okay, right? Like, yeah. I don't like know, twin stumbling on birth or even yeah. some fantastic thing like, you know, mm. the force or whatever it is. You can set up a world or a plot with something fantastic or coincidental, but you can't resolve it that way. Mm-hmm. You can't have all these characters' struggles and skills yeah. and training and interactions. And then in the end, they win because the good guys can't hit with their Uzis and the bad guys one shot, one kill with their pistols. Yeah. Right? It can't just be luck that resolves it. Yeah. It has to be the skills and decisions of the characters leading along the way. So Dunk is lucky to catch this conversation, but that's not what gets him through it in the end. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it's not like the second Blackfire. It's like, I would have succeeded if not for this one overhearing trip at the bathroom. You yeah. know, like this one particular thing yeah so it's not it's not moving the plot forward it's a way to show it's a way to illuminate the plot so i think that's an important distinction to make like we said dunk doesn't even understand what he hears he's got no idea yeah uh, you were talking about you know i would have done it if not for those pesky kids yeah (laughs) scooby-doo yeah like i'm picturing they pull off the glamour it was blood raving that's really good yeah um so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's also really fun to compare this scene to the Varus Illyrio scene with Arya down in the dungeon. It's got so much in common with it. First of all, it's the almost exact same narrative device in that Arya doesn't understand what's happening. It doesn't change the plot. It doesn't undermine their plot because she she's not even able to explain it to Ned. She's like, there was a wizard and with the hat and like they were talking about killing the hand and Ned's like, ha! Silly girl. <laughs> he just laughs it off. It doesn't change anything. It's purely to show the reader this plot. Like, it's to introduce us to the Varus Illyrio plot. It's something you keep coming back to after five books because it's so important. And it just, George just keeps giving us more to explain what that moment was. But it's also, what's also so cool about it, the same situation where we just, there's no Gorman Peak POV, there's no Illyrio POV, there's no Varus POV. So we have to, somehow we have to get this. So overhearing is a good way to do it. But George doesn't cheapen it by making it crucial. And what else is so cool about it is uh, they're discussing the same thing, a Blackfire restoration. (laughs) (laughs) He hadn't invented the name Blackfire yet when he wrote Game of Thrones, but he was still setting up a secret sort of cadet branch restoration that he hadn't fully flushed out. But where is Arya standing? Complete darkness in a dragon skull. (laughs) (laughs) With the uh, only light being a, a black skull. Yeah. yeah. The, yes, they are. Yeah. Because the dragon bones are black and it's the, the only light is the fire of a torch, <laughs> you know? So it's really awesome. It's the fa- the same dynasty, same eavesdropping benefit for the same benefit of the reader for the same family, same throne. It's so cool. You should have had RAP down there. I would have <laughs> really like tied it all together. <laughs> <laughs> well point. That's really good. <laughs> so during the feast, too, there's another interesting clue about like a sign of and this relates to bitter steel. They talk about how the brood of Bracken's not there. And they're like, ah, he's not going to show up for this. It's the tournament of blah, blah, blah. And they're like, 
Does that really make sense? It's a dragon egg at risk here. Like, you can win a dragon egg. <laughs> like, what do you mean you're not showing up for this dinky tournament? That's a big prize. Not a dinky tournament, yeah. And it's like, he lives just down the road. It's not even a far trip for him. He's like literally one of the closest houses, the, so in the fact, Brackens. Why didn't he show up? Do you think he wasn't invited? Do you think he didn't know about it? He's Bittersteel's he... relative. So if Bittersteel's not there, it's a sign. He's like, well, if Bittersteel's not back in this... I'm not dragging the family into this either. You know, they I may mean, have they may have communicated about it. Isn't it also possible that they thought it would be too obvious if he went that it would, yeah, it would yeah. draw more eyes? You're right. That's that true. That too as well. But that but the lack of him there also is kind of like, well, why is he not here? Well, like yeah, it, why either way. Yeah, it's kind of notable either way. You are correct. Yeah, and it is just another indication that they don't really have all their ducks in a row. Yeah, they don't have their dunks in a row either. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's, it's odd. It's a, a notable omission. His lack, his presence not being there is like, it doesn't add up the explanation given. It's like, yeah, so it's pretty neat. Like considering that it's another like little world building drop. Now there's another parallel here. That's interesting. That also relates to both eavesdropping stories. The, the eavesdropping stories combine an element of, will this big, powerful guy we need on our side, cross the narrow sea to help us Drogo. For for Varus and Lirio, bitter steel for here. Now, in both cases, that the they will cross sort of <laughs> eventually. Like Drogo is obviously dead, but his the Dothraki are probably going to cross with Danny right, instead, <laughs> right? Like that seems pretty likely. Uh, in much greater numbers, probably than even Varus and Lirio predicted, because uh, they were going to their thing was to murder to try to murder his son or murder Daenerys and that encourage him to take revenge on the seven kingdoms. That was their plan. Of course, it didn't work out that well. They're not trying to get, they, there's no like manipulating Bittersteel to get him to cross. They're just trying to say, Hey, look, we're doing the rebellion. This is your cause. You know, come on. They're trying to lure him over to help. And it's, it's a little more direct in this case. They, they want to directly ally with him. Whereas Varus and Lyria are more like using the Dothraki. Mm-hmm. He, he wanted to have them invade and then have their guy save the realm from that and be like the heroic savior. So in this case, it's kind of like you're heroically saving the realm from the evil Targaryen rule, the Ares and Blood Raven, like the bad, you know, uh, with their kin slaying and their all that sorcerous nonsense and all that. So, so it's similar, like the, the, the type of like attitude they're trying to engender in the populace and, and uh, the plotting and all that. That's so cool. These parallels are really big, but sneaky like it's simultaneously yeah, robust they're, they're grand but, but not obvious yeah we have uh of course the dothraki and their horses and bitter steel hey uh, the bitter the horse sigil yeah his bitter steel sigil is a flying horse a dragon a uh-huh. horse breathing fire the bracken sigil is a regular horse yeah regular horse so yes bitter steel dragonized it we're <laughs> horse people yeah the horse people so that's really good that's really good uh, let's jump to our mid roll here. We're about a little over an hour in and let's take a few comments and questions and then we'll get back to it. Dornish Dame says, wonder if a bit, I wonder a bit if Bittersteel almost set Damon up to fail so they could move on to Hagon. And if Damon favored music and lack marks of talent, Bittersteel may have seen him as more akin to Dare on the second than his father. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, Austin Flowers says, but why risk the embarrassment of the of that failure? Yeah, well, possibly because he didn't have a choice. Like, what's he going to do? Murder his own? Because he married Bittersteel married Damon's daughter, one of Damon's daughters. So he's now like, and he's already his half brother. So this would be this, this is his nephew. So it's like setting him up to fail and die is possible because he's not directly responsible. But I don't know. I don't know how Bittersteel feels about kinslaying. You know, I mean, he would kill Bloodraven if he could. 
<laughs> That's his half brother. Yeah. So like that much he would do. And Blood Raven, ditto. <laughs> but <laughs> so maybe he's not as concerned about kinslaying, but he has to be a little concerned about how the realm views such things. So, but I don't know. This it is, is interesting this is to think about. It's a good question. Because in some ways, too, they might be testing the waters. How quickly does Blood Raven catch on? How prepared? How many allies do we have? But also, well, you just lost all those allies. Whatever your next uh, <coughs> attempt is, you have that many fewer people to help you out. So, yeah, good point. Good point. Another really, really good take from Allison Westeros here. Before I get into it, a lot of you all wrote in or sent us messages about the fiddle concept. We were like, what does it mean? Why is he John the Fiddler? Was it purely to set up the fiddler on the roof joke? Is that it? Uh, maybe, but probably not. There's probably more to it. George likes multiple definitions. And a lot of you wrote in with ideas. And I think this is one of the most comprehensive takes uh, by Allison Westeros here. So I'm going to read it. She says, one of the definitions for fiddle is to meddle or tamper, which is a pretty good fit for the fake hedge knight but the british definition of fiddle includes the word swindle like that's more used there for that and swindle that is very more like what's happening here uh, they're trying to manipulate events um setting swindling the the, the tournament you know s- setting up uh, a lot of different people to participate some people may not even realize they're being drawn into a blackfire rebellion here yeah, and i'm like, like i Last week was talking about how the definition of fiddle was yeah. to meddle and tamper with something, but I did not realize the swindle part of that. That, so is that very makes limited. it even clearer to me. It's a really good take. Yes, thank I you. I do for like that, words Alice. in general and the subtleties and the meanings and the crossovers of synonyms because I I also like the idea of fiddle meaning to manipulate and manipulate a lot of times has this sort of negative connotation of manipulating another person. Yeah. But also you can like manipulate controls or manipulate a tool or even manipulating people can be positive again, getting them to put more effort into something or realize their potential and all those things all fit so perfectly. I feel silly for not having thought of it. Whereas I was thinking, you know, fiddling, like you kind of just do something to yeah. no effect. You're like fiddling with your hair. Fiddling around with a pencil because you're bored or yeah, but neg- you're not doing anything. Yeah. It's a waste. Anxious energy or something, but yeah. Yeah, the whole thing Failed was... Failed yeah. swindling. Failed swindling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then another suggestion was people bringing up Nero, the fiddling, you know, fiddling on the roof while Rome burned. It was like a black fire burning, you know, I don't know. That might kind of work, especially because he does go on the roof and he's fiddling up there and so he's particularly open with his dreams and his his like flirtatiousness when he's up there it's he's at his most like off point there you know he's like <laughs> we've incited a few of his lines that were humorous we'll get to that later but <laughs> the the overwhelming flirting there is just humorous so funny. i thought that everything was just straight normal well we're gonna show you some examples <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna teach you <laughs> i wanted to bring up my shirt oh yeah do by it. the way this it you might think that this is the tree where dunk buried arlen but you're wrong. It's where <laughs> Iroh buried Leitun, I think his name was. It's from Avatar, oh, okay. which I just realized has a lot of parallels to yeah, well, Duncan you, Egg. You did say there were a few. Here, hit us with some parallels. Like Egg, the main character, 10-year-old bald boy. Aang, the main character, 10-year-old bald boy. Oh, I don't know Avatar <laughs> they, very well, so this is news yeah. to me. Yeah, And Aang is also... I don't want to get too deep into it, but basically he's supposed to be in this sort of position of power. Mm. But he just wants to be a little kid. (laughs) A little similar to Aang. There's a lot more to it. I mean, it's its own story and its own for sure. I wouldn't say it's only parallels to uh, History of Westeros or to to Duncan Egg, but there's a lot for sure. Right on. Cool. So starting off with Guinevere Greenstone's take here on the... Wedding pie symbology and the purpose of marriage. Now, 
Nina had some takes on this as well. It's really interesting to show just like the the denigration put here, just the casual misogyny that's thrown around, which is no, not unexpected for the setting at all, of course. But it, it, it Maynard says, you know, what's the point of marriage? Well, it's, you know, her C word or what would be the point? And it's it, and there's lines like churn the butter. Well, my sweet. It's like, oh, like that's from her father. Like her father <laughs> says that. It's like, oh, come on. Like, God, that's like right before the betting. Like, ugh. <laughs> but like you have the betting itself is, of course, even worse. But uh, this is uh, what she says. It's amazing that George can write a male POV like Dunk with zero experience of women, yet still demonstrate the difference between his ignorance and the ingrained misogyny in society. Because Dunk doesn't he doesn't get into this. He's not like, yeah, turn the butter. Well, this doesn't resonate with him. He doesn't explicitly reject it, but he's not down with it either. He's not like, yeah, misogyny. I mean, he wouldn't necessarily recognize it as that because he's living in it. But he, it's nice that he kind of in the way that he thinks of egg is like, I need to make sure he has food. He's like, I'm just, this just isn't for me. Like, I'm not going to insult women. I'm not going to mock people. Like it's, it provides that context, you know, that difference. It is another, and you know, again, this is probably a very broad debatable topic, but the idea of how much we're affected by our nurture, you know, our Nature, nurture, yeah, sure. Right, you know, Environment, like, yeah. that everyone in every society isn't always exposed to the exact same things. Things are actually a little more homogenized these days because of TV and the internet and everything, but the, the wealthy nobles are going to go through a different set of life circumstances and expectations of women and men. Like, you can imagine people living on a farm might have a little bit more recognition of the work that a woman does, right? Than the nobles, where they're just the mothers of the kids and don't say anything, stay out of our way, where you count on them to churn the butter and raise the kids and sometimes plow the field and all the other work that needs to be done to make regular life happen when you're not wealthy to pay other or force other people to do it. Yeah. So the betrothal story, let's talk about that. This is another clue that Bloodraven is not who he seems because Maynard Plum is Bloodraven because of like, how does he know all these? Like, how does he know all these secrets about this, the origin of this, this wedding or this, this, this marriage, which, yeah, he could have heard rumors. You know, there's, there's people, some people talking about it. It's not completely out of the question, but it's adds to the pastiche of ideas here. Uh, it may not look like it. This is another example of like father, like son to be found here with the phrase when Dunk comes back inside from emptying his bladder. Outside, there's more bladder emptying going on inside. (laughs) Quote. His melancholy ponderings were rudely interrupted when a troop of painted dwarves came bursting from the belly of a wheeled wooden pig to chase Lord Butterwell's fool about the tables. That's a lot of sentences. That is. (laughs) It's not a ton. (laughs) Walloping him with inflated pig's bladders that made rude noises every time a blow was struck. It was the funniest thing Dunk had seen in years, and he laughed with all the with all the rest. Lord Frey's son was so taken by their antics that he joined in, pummeling the wedding guests with a bladder he borrowed from a dwarf. <laughs> the child had the most irritating laugh Dunk had ever heard, a high, shrill hiccup of a laugh that made him want to take the boy over a knee and throw him down a well. <laughs> if he is me with that bladder, I may do it. So this is the one time we see Dunk kind of like, yeah, he's like, this is, we were just talking about how good natured Dunk is on the inside, but here he is thinking about throwing a child in a well because of how awfully annoying he is. And we get it because that's, we know that laugh. It's the heh <laughs> <laughs> the wall, he did Walder have a good, a good intuition about <laughs> the nature of this child. Yes, that's right. Yes, maybe he should be thrown. It's 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 going to be funny, by the way. Like it made me think. Like, is that what's going to happen? Is that how Lord Walder's going to die eventually? Is someone going to throw him well. in a well? Yeah. Is that how he's going to die in the se- main series? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Yeah, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, well, eh? 
But more than that, it's one of the most intriguing moments in the story because not only because of the story itself, perhaps not even half of it. What fascinates me about is who the speaker and the listener are. The person telling the story is Bloodraven. He says, there's the lad who made this marriage when young Walter Frey goes running by. And who says, how so? John the Fiddler. So Bloodraven's telling John the Fiddler how this wedding happened. It's so meta. It's like, <laughs> whoa, like I'm here. I am about to take you down. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you part of what happened. What's I'm going to tell you the origin of this whole situ- situation that is part of what's going to take you down. It's, it's like, wow. <laughs> so Bloodraven explains the daughter was caught naked with a kitchen scullion who she'd been having an affair with repeatedly. Damon didn't know this. He didn't know this. This is like, this is kind of an undermining of the thing. He's like, really? That's the reason? He doesn't seem to care. We don't get his reaction to it because Dunk like passes out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but here's a, here's an, but even. He also seems to be kind of on top of the world. This is the night before he's crowned. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he's yeah. drunk and he might hook up with Dunk tonight. You know, <laughs> like he's not worried about what made this wedding, you know, but maybe you should be. Maybe you should yeah. have been told up front. Would he have still gone along with this? You know, <laughs> that's really funny yeah so it's uh he's just it's super like i said super super meta you got like the main sort of operator the the big brains behind the operation just directly talking to the mark you know the guy that he's after you know so it's really neat uh and dunk even despite his um drunkenness his lack of understanding the intrigue even this part stands out to him the the marriage the oddness of this match and here's another quote why would he wed a girl who's been soiled by a kitchen scullion and give away his dragon's egg to mark the match. The phrase of the crossing were no nobler than the Butterwells. They owned a bridge instead of cows. That was the only difference. Lords, who can ever understand that? <laughs> so wealth is often a reason why a so-called lesser house marries into a higher house. Like they pay a massive dowry. In, in, the, in the case of Lionel uh, Corbray, he married a non-noble. And Lord Littlefinger describes the dowry as staggering (laughs) so it's like yeah if you're not even a noble family you really got to pay to join the club it's like massive country club dues or something like that something the effect it's like you pay a big bribe to a noble family and they'll bring you into the and they'll make you a noble also that's kind of how it works and it's the same thing works for lesser to greater nobles but these are that's why blood raven points out that these are equal houses like these are relatively equal houses so why is this the so-called soiled daughter being married to the guy who's given away the dragons like, like he shouldn't have to give away anything yeah right like so it's odd it even by the standards of marriages of between nobles this is backwards right it's the the phrase should be the ones paying up because this is a quote soiled daughter which you know i don't like that phrase but that's the <laughs> that's the term they're using that's it's it's the the germane term here nina makes a great comparison calling up the the name of amare Frey, aka gatehouse amy who was a Frey married off because she had affairs with stable boys or whatever. And it was the same thing. She married down, right? They may, they had to find someone to take her. Right? Married so, down from the phrase. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah, she married a hedge knight. Yeah. <laughs> so it's <gasps> right. <gasps> the scandal, but like you see, so it's like, it's, it goes to show like, yeah, this is, this is out of the ordinary. Um, so it's yet another <laughs> clue. So the dragon is, is not, simple extravagance it's like okay this is unusual it's unnecessary and wealthy people aren't trying to get it <laughs> like where <laughs> yeah, yeah they're not showing up to try and win it and and dunk is just like ah eh, who can understand well several people can especially blood raven sitting right there <laughs> <laughs> another example from nina here good good one the the example of john aaron and lisa tully right the 
comparing the Butterwell frame marriage to that. She says the Butter, the Baratheon, Aaron Stark rebel faction needed the, quote, swords and spears of House Tully during Robert's Rebellion. Uh, John Aaron had lost his nephew-in-law and heir, Dennis Aaron, at Stony Sept. And so, and his nephew, Elbert, had been killed by Ares, executed along with Brandon's companions in the, you know, infamous moment there when he, you know, burned Rickard and all that. John needed a new wife if House Aaron was going to keep going. So this was just exactly what's happening here. Butterwell lost all his sons, so he's got to make new sons. Uh, and, but the g- real goal there was to get House Tully's army on their side. That was another point. Like for John Aaron, he wants to continue his house, but for the Tullys, they don't necessarily care about the Aarons continuing. I'm sure that's a benefit to them, but they, for them, they want to be on a winning side. They need to, they need to be really bought in. You know, they're not going to casually take the side of, of a rebel faction, especially because the Tullys have a history of supporting the Targaryens, et cetera, et cetera. Makes a lot of sense here. But if you compare the, the, the arrangement, like, well, that's what's going on. The Freys are, are being given extra here because their military strength is what is really yeah. being given. That's yeah. the real prize here. No one's speaking about it openly, but that's what it is. It's their army. Uh, and we know from A Song of Ice and Fire, the Freys do have a substantial army. They're uh, geographical location, too. Yes, they're close by. Like these are all like most of these. Well, not just close by, but can control that path. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yes. Good point. The the, the crossing is really important. Like it would keep the northerners out or or let them in if they were on their side. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I wonder about this. Is he trying to undermine Damon's confidence with these comments? Like just showing him what's really happening, like showing him how the weakness of the conspirators that are backing him doesn't seem to have an effect, like we said, because this guy's just like. Flying high on confidence and yeah. wine. <laughs> <laughs> that can make anything possible. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but, I, but I think it does kind of fit with his strategy of just like, he's not trying to kill anyone. He's just trying to undermine this, have this whole, trying to cause this whole thing to collapse in on itself. Take away morale, take away enthusiasm, take the steam out of it. Which I didn't think of till just now, but it behooves him to do that. It could be, uh, oh, what's the word? It might encourage others to do it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Good point. If yeah. he can like keep this, if he can eliminate this on the DL, that would be better for him. Yeah. Because here's a question we didn't attempt last time that I would like to discuss briefly, which is we talked about Quentin Ball's death by Arrow. And this is one of the interesting things about this event is that it's uh it's not rare, but it's a little unusual that Nina and I have a separate take on this. She thinks it was as said, basically, some guy killed this, uh, killed Quentin Ball on the eve of battle. Doesn't have to be an assassination. I agree with that possibility, but I do leave room for it being an assassination by Bloodraven. He knows the importance of certain men, certain leaders, a, a general, a valuable frontline general dying on the eve of an important battle. Got to consider the possibility, like at least it's hard to not consider that was an accident. But beyond the idea, even if he really, if Bloodraven is responsible or not, just beyond that idea, what I want to suggest and bring up, which is relevant to A Song of Ice and Fire, is just the notion that sorcery can steer an arrow, right? Uh, because it's a, he's accused of that on the Redgrass field of killing Aegon and Aemon and Daemon that way, right? With his steering, his sorcerer, the, the, fired as much by sorcery as by his bow, right? The reason that's relevant to me possibly for Song of Ice and Fire, is if you've got Bran, you got arrows, you got bolts, you got dragons. It has to hit it right in the eye to kill it. Eh? Yeah, someone, you know, helping a shot along. I guess a really hard shot to make, <laughs> shooting a dragon yeah. in the eye mm-hmm. with an arrow. But if you've got sorcery helping you, I'm just saying, could be a setup for that. I-, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a complete nothing, but it could be like undead dragon, Euron's dragon, something like that. you got to hit it right in the eyeball. What do you think? I... 
I tend to like the idea of it just being a, a random yeah. soldier had killed him. I think it's maybe more realistic or fitting. Absolutely. It is yeah. just the way the world works sometimes. It isn't only great people that kill other great people. But also, it is possible, if not likely, even if it wasn't Blood Raven himself that shot him with an arrow. Yeah. Blood Raven might have put a bounty on Hey, whoever kills this guy, 100 mm-hmm. gold dragons maybe. or whatever, yeah, you maybe. know. Because it's like, it's such a good shot, too. Like, you shoot him from really far away, hit him in the throat while he's drinking from a stream. Like, it's an incredible shot. <laughs> Not that a peasant can't do that. Absolutely, yeah. they can. Like, these guys are people. Peasants have to live by their archery skills. Like, you, you, if you miss, you don't eat. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> here's a couple more thoughts. It does seem like, even if it was just some random archer, that after having done that, they might have been applauded, knighted, Praise, rewarded in some way. I'm saying, yeah. But, you know, the first rule of assassination is kill the assassin. Mm. You know, if, if Blood Raven did put a bounty out, whoever did do it, then might have been killed after for doing it, or at least ordered to keep it secret so it wasn't known that Blood Raven did. I, I can see all kinds of reasons why it might have been covered up, and that the fact that we don't know who it was, even if it was just some random archer. Yeah. It's like, after the fact, we might have found out who it was. You think that person would have killed him and not gone and told their captain or their <laughs> lord or whoever, hey, look who I yeah, killed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and it's also kind of a thing, like, the phrase, like, even if, if like, random peasants go about killing, you know, no- nobles and kings and, like, then that's a thing, like, a cultural thing. Like, you're not supposed to do that. You're not, su- your peasants aren't supposed to kill great lords. That's just propaganda <laughs> you know but it is great lords aren't supposed to join rebellions yeah that too right <laughs> yeah so <laughs> now fireball just as a little more background on him he's inspired by henry hotspur percy who was an english knight like a really important figure time of henry the fourth we cover him a little more in blackfire in the blackfire series but he's also depicted in shakespeare and that is, is a good example of the popular retelling the you know shakespeare's version isn't trying to be history that's the version that a lot of people like rely on even though it's just it's not accurate Shakespeare's just you know making this guy seem more interesting <laughs> but hey that's normal here's another good example of dunk being unaware of himself <laughs> donkey's like i wonder if rohan or tanzel are thinking of me ever like you know sexually mm-hmm. and we just have like the women staring at him and the one woman like <laughs> sticks her chest out at him yeah. like yeah they think about you yeah they do. <laughs> you know i i had the thought that i wonder <laughs> If Eustace or when Eustace dies, yeah. would Rohan seek Dunk out? Would she send an envoy or a messenger or someone to track him down with him? Would she have secured her lands well enough that she could afford to marry him? The timing we, is awkward because we know she marries Gerald Lannister. Right, but how but quickly in between, do we know yeah, when? I don't know. I and don't that know, might yeah. even be a story that Martin tells somewhere in there that like and, and I even thought, uh, you know what'll happen is that her messenger will show up to King's Landing just as he's been dubbed into the King's Guard. Like, hey, Logan, I want you to come back to her. Oh, man. Oh. Gotta oh. look up the date. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, up too late. Sorry. <laughs> so he passes out, dreams of them both at the same time. He may have thought the world was supporting his dreaming efforts because he wakes up to shouts of, bed them, bed them. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> I was about to do that until you woke me up, damn it. <laughs> I was having a really nice dream of just that, but no. So no, but of course, it's the betting ceremony. They're not yelling at him. They're not cheerleading his dream, his sex dreams. They're cheerleading the betting ceremony. Another wed- red wedding. I'm sorry, wed- redding. red wedding parallel was when Damon goes, let the giant carry her. Right. The only time like the giant, which is funky because in the red wedding, who carries Rosalind? 
the Tyrion? great oh no it's the other it's the other way okay <laughs> the great john and he's of course not only is he also gigantic possibly even bigger than dunk he is his sigil is a giant <laughs> and he says give this little bride to me and and grabs her <laughs> throws her over one shoulder it says <laughs> uh here with dunk they're trying to get him to do it they might say they were egging him on ah, yeah <laughs> I'll regress because I've made myself perfectly uh, redundant. redundant. <laughs> <laughs> the betting is something of a familiar refrain. We've seen a few of these in the stories. Uh, sad to say this is not pure fiction. There are real world bettings that are kind of like this. Uh, witnesses present for consummation. That's the general thing. That's the point of it is they're just trying to make sure that they're really it really happened. Pretty awkward. Uh, previous examples like Sansa, Rosalind Frey, we've talked about a lot here. Uh, Catelyn, of course, remembers her own ceremony. Hers wasn't too bad in terms of her own memory. She doesn't have negative memories of it. Not great memories of it, but it doesn't like traumatize her. Whereas Rosalind is probably traumatized to some degree. We've got Sansa. And this is, of course, the reminder of Lady Verwell crying. This is kind of coming back to that. Now, this Frey girl doesn't seem to be having too bad of a time, even though it is, you know, pretty bad. Uh, she's not like crying or anything. So that's something we get a kind of a closer look at what it tends to function. Because all those other ones had weird stuff like Tyrion's like, no, no betting ceremony, yeah. you know, like something like kind of interrupted a lot of those. And of course, the red wedding was so that one's not typical. <laughs> so this is actually the most typical one we've seen. The marriage actually holds, even though like this rebellion collapses. He had blood rams like you keep your wife, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I wish you hell happiness with her, you know, now get away. So. Hope it was worth it. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't, but yeah, make the most of it if you can. So, yeah, so this is a, a pretty interesting look at that because it's more, like I said, more normal. But also it reminds us of cases like uh, Barristan thinking about Ares taking, quote unquote, liberties with Joanna during the betting, during her betting when she married Tywin. And that's a big source of friction between Ty Tywin and Ares for a long time. Well, mostly on Tywin's side, Ares just doesn't care, probably. <laughs> He's like, I don't know, I'll do what I want. But, like, that's a, a thing. Like, he grabbed her, apparently. It's, like, the most, like, that seems to be, like, a likely thing. Like, he fondled her or something, which is what we see with, like, this dwarf do here. And it kind of reminds us, like, this is not, obviously not okay, but a, probably somewhat not unnormal not abnormal given this is everyone's drunk and people are misogynist and grabby like yeah i'm sure this is even if somehow this ritual is standard there are at least some people who think there should be some limits there's some line you shouldn't pass yeah and maybe some scallion you know maybe some naive teen noble son or some kitchen person or uh you know but not the lords, not the king. You shouldn't do this. Like, yeah. The whole thing, it's like, it's almost, I'm, I, part of me is like, I can't believe that this type of thing would come about. I can't believe fathers would stand there while this happens to the daughters. But then I think Tywin would definitely let this happen. Roos would let this happen. Yeah, I they're like trying they to protect do. their power. They're like, yeah. yep, we all have to suffer for the family. They don't have any more respect yeah. for their daughter than they do for women in general, I guess. I don't they know. don't even see it as being disrespectful, I think. That's part of it. Like, yeah. I don't even know if they see it that way. Like, uh, they seem like, nope, this is how it has to be. I just want to shake them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> so it's kind of, so, so Nina wonders even, like, maybe given that... Uh, that scenario maybe Ares was like I'll carry her and he's like fondling her now it's hard to think about Ares carrying someone because the picture of Ares is like this frail kind old man but back then he would have no, been he, younger yeah. he was knighted he fought in the um 
Nine Penny King's Rebellion and all that war. So he was he wasn't always like that. He was, uh, you know, according to others, when he was young, he was promising. Right. Bears says he was full of promise, you know, he because he hadn't gone off the deep end yet. He his he had all his faculties or most of them at that point. So, yeah, so he wasn't, you know, weak and frail. He was probably capable of it, but uh, maybe not fully capable, but it wasn't crazy to think, you know, so that's a possibility like a, you could see him jumping at the chance to fondle this woman he's had the hots for forever. He's made many comments about in the past, and that would set up a lot more of the, the frustration, the anger, the intensity, the, the desire for revenge that the Tywin would be holding on to for a very long time. So here's a description of the bedchamber. You're talking about the, the armor. We get actually get a quote of that here, but also we get the, uh, the lead into the setup. This is a whole bunch of fancy things about to be forfeited to the crown, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Lord Butterwell's chamber was large and lavish once he found it. Mirrorish carpets covered the floors, a hundred scented candles burned in nooks and crannies, and a suit of plate inlaid with gold and gems stood beside the door. It even had its own privy set into a small small stone alcove in the outer wall. The very next line after the quote is the dwarf jumping into bed and, and fondling the girls. So we have the three things in a row here. We have the privy set into the wall. We have the next line, the dwarf jumping into bed saying, you know, uh, and then John calls him off and says, stop that. And then he, as he's hauling the dwarf off the bed, it divert, it turns him to the side and he sees the egg for the first time. And we get something precious, not just the egg itself, but one of the best descriptions we've ever gotten of a dragon's egg. So it's worth quoting. It was much bigger than a hen's egg, though not so big as he'd imagined. Fine red scales covered its surface, shining bright as jewels by the light of lamps and candles. Dunk dropped the dwarf and picked up the egg, just to feel it for a moment. It was heavier than he'd expected. You could smash a man's head with this and never crack the shell. The scales were smooth beneath his fingers, and the deep, rich red seemed to shimmer as he turned the egg in his hands. Blood and flame, he thought. But there were gold flecks in it as well, and whirls of... Midnight Black. Man, that's cool, right? And we just we discussed how the egg as a prize sends all sorts of signals, and now it's even weirder given the marriage circumstances, but because it's like, wow, this thing is so amazing. But this isn't just Dunk's awe. The description of it is important for setting up the fake version later. Now we don't see the fake one, right? It's just, but it's just, it's you know, he's like, I I bet it's nothing more than a painted stone. Which, given this description, how the heck are you going to fake that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like it would be really obvious. It's like, no, that's not a dragon's egg. Come on. I just saw a real one and this is nothing. There's no shiny this and that. The scales like you can't fake that. Maybe a couple people were like, yeah, it's real and try to keep it. But Dunk would know. Like, Let me see it. Yeah, because I know I saw it. Yeah. And, you know, and if someone else turns up with the real one like this egg, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that, of course, is very helpful. So he knows he can call Peak's bluff later when they try to pin it on Glendon Ball. He's like, ah, mm, uh, you know, I don't know about that. But another really thing about this is that it makes him melancholy. The egg makes him melancholy. And that's really interesting for looking ahead, thinking about how the dragon eggs represent death and destruction via Summer Hall and just, well, just dragons represent death and destruction anyway <laughs> he thought about smashing someone's head with it he yeah like at it as a weapon yes you're right that's really interesting like he's not like someone like dunk he thinks of it like it's a jewel but he's like yeah this is heavy enough to smash a man's head and like why not heavy enough to i don't know lots of other things like why that you know out of all the all the ways he can imagine that it's weight he thinks of it as a weapon yeah and that's that is telling um with the color of the egg being blood and flame 
Nina agrees. It's like she calls it proto foreshadowing for Dunk's eventual death at Summer Hall. Like eggs are going to kill him, too, in a, in a sense. But the combination of egg and eggs <laughs> and, and wildfire, I suppose. But also even as a dragon, it's a weapon. Yes, you know? you're right. Yes, you're right. Because if it does hatch, what do you think is going to happen? It's yeah. Gonna... And it's a symbol, too. Uh, it's you know. a soft blanket that comforts the, <laughs> the realm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so a little bit of research. Ash, you did some research here? Yeah, just to answer your uh, thoughts, Sean, because I was curious. Rohan married to Gerald Lannister um, at some point between 211 and 219. Notably, what we see in Sword and Sword is 211. So, like, Eustace could have died as early as, like, right after. Yeah. But Eustace he could, could died already more be like dead. 219, probably more towards the middle end, let's say. Yeah. Um, and they had their first kids. So. That's well before Dunk becomes Kingsguard. Um, Rohan disappears in 230 under mm. mysterious circumstances. Egg ascends to the throne in 233. And then Dunk, the first time he is referred to as a Kingsguard is in 236. Probably he was, you know, made one maybe a year or two before when Egg ascended. But It may have been during Makar's reign. Makar could have rewarded yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. So, that's just the first time. But yeah, we don't know. Obviously, what this means is that Rohan went to kill Tancel because they couldn't get over her. <laughs> Wholehearted, yeah. It's the only possible story that Martin has to write about this. <laughs> so let's talk about Dunk. Uh, then, you know, he's... In the room, the bedding and all this happens. It sets up the theft. Uh, Gorman Peak gets on him for touching the egg. And he's like, oh, my bad. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Why did I pick that up? He, it is a little. He's like, yeah, why? I should know better than to just handle the fancy jewels, you know. Uh, so he goes upstairs for the roof to get a little air. And John the Fiddler follows him up and we get. He can handle John's fancy jewels. That's true. Now, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping ahead to, well, we're going to discuss the scene in, in, in full, but jumping ahead to the end of it because it's so funny. I love this line so much. <laughs> pair of men at arms stepped onto the roof. Lord Gorman Peak was just behind them. Gormy, the fiddler drawled. What are you doing in my bedchamber, my lord? It's a roof, sir, and you have had too much wine. Lord Gorman made a sharp gesture and the guards moved forward. Allow us to help you to that bed. You are jousting on the morrow, pray recall. Kirby Pym can prove a dangerous foe. I had hoped to joust with good with good Sir Duncan here. <laughs> <laughs> so much innuendo. That's another thing. We've got a running list of all the innuendo. We'll get to that at the end or in the wrap-up. I'll make up. you my man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about doing all the innuendo at the in the wrap-up with Nina. We can all do a little round where we go around and, mm -hmm. and read it together. That'll be fun. Now, uh direct clue that Kirby Pym's in on it because like they're saying that's who you're fighting <laughs> it's like well this guy's clearly been bribed because clearly all his opponents are setups so that's really funny but <laughs> what are you doing in my bed chamber this is the roof <laughs> so it's the fiddler on the roof joke it's so good also interesting it is another like he doesn't even know that he's relating to Dunk here but he is Dunk he is. slept on the roof wants to be under the stars he, Good point. he really is a brother in a sense you know yeah yeah you're right there is they do have things in common it's true like Damon is trying to make too much of that but they do have things in common they like the, the father stuff the living up the, like trying to be a knight trying to you know deal with all this business you know uh, handling royals uh, just D expectations names. d names <laughs> <laughs> good one 
they discuss dreams. This is a great scene. It's one of the most important scenes of the whole story, probably, at least as far as like extrapolating things outside of this story, like looking at how dreams work and eggs work and all these other things. It's a very valuable moment there. Uh, so here's another quote. I'll start it. Uh, a dragon will hatch? A living dragon? What, here? I dreamed it. This pale white castle, you, a dragon bursting from an egg. I dreamed it all, just as I once dreamed of my brothers lying dead. They were 12 and I was only 7, so they laughed at me and died. I am 2 and 20 now, and I trust my dreams. Yeah, so as we said earlier, he's had time to learn, to see more of his dreams to come true when you're 7. He probably hasn't had a lot of that. But it's a really good time for us to think of Daron the Drunken, because Damon here is the drunken in this scene as well. (laughs) (laughs) It's really too bad. Daron and Damon couldn't grow up together. Yeah, right. They could have really commiserated over it. yeah, might have, but it might have been nice to have someone to, to talk to about that. It might have not been so depressing. And yeah, you might not have and maybe actually pieced some truth of it together, yeah. too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They could have worked together and like talked to Ares, who's, you know, the one predicting these things. They, if they had really put some some science behind this, some logic, some <laughs> rationality, like a little some organization behind it all. Maybe it would have gone differently. But <laughs> but yeah, the one of the hugely notable examples here is we were just talking about it. He dreams of Duncan the Kingsguard. <laughs> so I was like, yep, uh, but when, but again, it's an example of clearly his timing is off. Um, and I, but I wonder, was Damon alive in captivity when Dunk gets knighted yeah. or Does gets put in the Kingsguard? That? He's like, there it is. Like, damn it. <laughs> you know, it was like another thing just for him to be depressed about while sitting in prison. Yeah, I don't know. It's I really interesting. Yeah. No. Like, uh, I wonder, especially if that's the case, if he would have talked to Blood Raven. Like, again, Blood Raven might not like him, but I still can't help but wonder after enough time goes by, especially the sort of charisma he had. Yeah. Blood Raven might have wanted to go to the wall based on a dream that Damon had. It's possible. He might have been like, you know what? This is probably what's supposed to happen anyway, you know? Yeah, no, I yeah, you wonder think if they it talked. makes perfect sense that they would talk. Like, yeah, I don't think there's point. any doubt that Blood Raven went down there and talked to him and that they talked about dreams. How can that not come up? Especially if you're Damon and you're trying to do anything to get out of prison. Probably you bring up your prophetic dreams. <sighs> you know what this really gives me vibes of is Varus going to talk to Ned in prison but not being, oh, but not being Varus, like pretending yeah. to be someone else. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, because if he goes down as Blood Raven, that might not go so well. But, but if he goes down as just like some jailer, mm-hmm. some friendly jailer, like, let me talk to you, man. You know, let's have a mm-hmm. chat. You know, <laughs> ooh, that's pretty cool. We're on to something here. These are fun. Like, this is or even this, another this, this, prisoner. Oh, yeah. Just someone in another cell. cell with him pretending to be another prisoner. I yeah. remember you, Maynard Plum. Yeah, yeah I was there, too. <laughs> they threw me in jail now. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. These are good. These are good theories. <laughs> they might might be completely off base here, but it's 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 it fits. It would fit very well. It would work very well. So, yeah. And then, of course, there's this other like you said, we brought this topic up. The question about whether he's ever been to the wall. Is that from a dream? Did he did he see that in a dream? He's like, I know you've gone to the wall eventually because he does. He escorts. Oh, and he may go there another time. We know at least he goes there once. So that might be another evidence of, of a dream that Damon has that is uh, being explained here. Here's a few other comparisons that Nina wrote out for us as Damon the Younger to Darren the Drunken uh, comparisons. Like the prophetic dreams, obviously, both sons of talented Targaryen-blooded martial commanders, both wore the names of recent patriarchs. They're both like Daron was the actual king and Daron is, is the son or the son of the son. And Damon, same deal, right? He's the third son, but he's got the name of the father. Yeah, neither would have anticipated being the heir, right? Because they were really far down. Like, 
Daron, the drunken, is the son of Makar. Makar's the fourth son. <laughs> so, like, that's why Egg is Aegon the Unlikely, because he's even farther down than Daron, um, being his younger brother. And then they have similar aspects in their father figures, like sharing. They're both really dutiful and tough, like, meaning Makar. And father figure for Damon would be Bittersteel, because he didn't really grow up with his own father that much. Bittersteel's the whole Blackfire patriarchs. This would be the tough, like, solid, like you know, demanding, strict kind of guy. So you kind of feel like maybe this was a, another parent point of connection between the two of them. So yeah, like as y'all were saying, they would have a lot of interesting conversations, even their upbringing. They would have a lot, things like that. Even, uh, even coming down to things like the bullying, like he, Nina mentions that uh, Damon was bullied and uh, Daron was teased and picked on, maybe not by his own family. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe Arian mocked him. I don't know. But but maybe some of the maybe some of his cousins. I don't know. But like he wasn't a wasn't a, you know, guy that uh, is, is hard to make fun of, you know, in this kind of society. It kind of he was kind of a by in their eyes. He was a loser. Right. We had some people in the chat too, like Dornish Dame brought up um, how that might have been a source of comfort for Daron, for example, if he had had someone to commiserate uh, with, you know, yeah. um, and Damon. A cousin going through the same thing, and Guilty Undertaker uh, noted that Damon seems much less bothered by his dreams than Daron was, and I think um, yes. a lot of that comes down to that Damon needed something to grasp onto, to hold onto, that showed his Targaryenness. Mm, and, you know, that's a good call. That's a very good call. I like that idea a lot. Yeah, and, you're, and you guys are right to, to bring that up because Daron, if if Damon was still alive in prison for a while, Daron, I mean, Daron didn't die till 221 at the earliest, at the earliest. He probably died later than that. So he was definitely alive for all this imprisonment of Daron or of Damon. So he uh, could have visited him in prison. When did Daron die? We don't know, but but after the third Blackfire, well after the third Blackfire, like 221 or later. Imagine if Daron and Damon talked about their dreams of eggs hatching. Daron told Egg about it. Like it could even be more enforced yeah. in Egg's mind. And King Aerys would want to know about. He would want. He would. He would want to be privy to these conversations. He would know. Want to know about these dreams because he's the guy researching prophecy. Like, and I mean, that's what it comes <laughs> down to. That Egg obviously does get really into this idea, and he does try something. Yes, without and a doubt. So, and Aemon is familiar with it too. So clearly, people were talking about it. Yeah. All the more reason, too, for Ares to be, when remember at the end, Bloodraven's like, or Dunk asks, what, are, they gonna, are you going to execute the Fiddler? And he's like, not my call. It's up to Ares, you know. I, I don't think we should because then they can immediately crown the brother, but, you know, it's up to him. That's a really good lead into what we're talking about here. Ares would be like, no, don't execute him. One, for the same reasons, the, the political reasons, but also because, no, I want to I wanna hear about his dreams. You know, I'm the prophecy king you know <laughs> tell me your dreams dude cousin i'd you make know? a good king because i'm also interested in people's dreams <laughs> <laughs> so yeah this is good this is these are very good theories coming out of this obviously none Honestly, of this is i just want to say sean you joked right there but that would be a good quality in a king even today <laughs> curiosity yeah, yeah. yeah trying to you know it's like it's it's it's, it's weird to think about now because we don't have this kind of stuff in the real world but like that is real in their world so studying it as if it's a science or as if it's a thing worth studying well, makes mean, tons of sense i mean like truly like let's say the king of of Eng i don't know like whatever some king came up to me and asked me about my dreams that tells you that that king is probably better than the average one because they care about the common person mm. and to be fair okay. even without prophecy there's a lot to be learned from dreams sometimes mm -hmm. usually it is something sure. going on sure. in someone's mind some some past experience or some hope they have is kind of coming out through a dream. 
And that could matter, you know, if you're trying to make a decision about your counselors or subordinates or, or even yourself, you know, contemplating dreams and their meanings might be valuable. Yeah. Really, we just don't ever see Ares. No, we don't. We really only have uh, secondhand accounts of him. Duncan Egg might eventually put him on screen. He won't die till 221, and there's his 211, so he, yeah, like, he's, he's like, just oh, he's ascended here. he's scholarly and into prophecy, okay? Yeah. That's what we know. And he's still king during the third Blackfire Rebellion, and, you know, he's the one that, that decides not to execute Bittersteel, which really backfires. Blackfires. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Uh, there's more symbolism here with White Walls itself because one of the comparisons that gets made in terms of bringing up the wall is the White Walls of White Walls is a comparison to the wall, which also brings up the topic of Kingsguard White and all that. But castle made of snow, you know, snow doesn't uh, work out so well for dragons. (laughs) You know, (laughs) this is a dragon hatching dream and you got a castle made of snow. Those aren't those things don't go well together. So that's it's a bad sign if you're a dream reader. I different interpretations, but I would say that's a bad sign. I have to say, <laughs> just because of other debates in the fandom, whenever there's mention of like snow and we haven't seen in his dreams, I'm like, can it be Ash? Mm. I just have to think about that okay, in, okay. In any time when someone brings up a dream where we are not, do not see it described. Just because it's a damn pretty cool thing, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Could it be a bastard from the north that they're dreaming about? Uh, mm. Far into the Maybe Could a be. certain yeah. bastard. It, it's <laughs> absolutely possible because, after all, we have the, the theory that want to shout out our friend Joe Magician. He's the first person I heard this one from, I think been a while but uh we'll give him a shout out anyway good job joe magician that some of these dreamers like arian maybe daron they were dreaming of daenerys like that's why that's why Ares jumped on the pyre to the wildfire stuff because they saw they were seeing visions of what of daenerys is jumping on a pyre and, and it did work like the eggs hatched that they were seeing visions of that and they each just through their own arrogance or ego or insanity thought it was themselves they were seeing themselves in that which is yeah. why you know which is why Ares was going to blow up all of king's landing things like that you know i Definitely have just seen that as like a standard, like, of course, that's what they were thinking. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, Melisandre also at one point says, I, I, I wish I could remember. I think it might have been John. Asked, someone asked her, like, what about, I wish I could remember a little better. But I think someone asked her if she saw Zora High. And she's like, I see like, only snow. All I see is snow. Yeah. Whenever yeah. all I see is yeah, snow. Yeah, capital S, <laughs> snow. Yeah. But it does make me think other times when someone is seeing, you know, crystals of water falling mm-hmm. that maybe that's just the prophecy of their dream being Jon Snow. Or also maybe it's Ash. Like even Melisandre, it didn't occur to me. She might have been seeing Ash there too. Like yeah. it's, um, maybe it's too easy for that to be Jon Snow. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, in the Melisandre case, it's Jon Snow. Yeah. <laughs> um, in other cases, I mean, yeah, if they're Ash having prophecies snow, way ahead of their time, right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> snow and ash, fire and ice. That's the afterwards, right? First you get fire and ice, then afterwards you have snow <laughs> and ash <laughs> after the battle. <laughs> That's what's left. Another, just yet another uh, clue that comes in this moment is when Gorman's like, "You, you won't repeat anything set up here." Well, that implies that there's that important things were said that shouldn't be repeated. <laughs> well, they sort of were. He thought they were. Because remember, he walks up. He doesn't know what happened, but he knows that there's already been this act- interaction between the two, between uh, Peek and... Uh, yeah. And, I mean, uh, 
the fiddler and uh he, he probably noticed the flirting or something to it uh, yeah. what? dunk yeah yeah and he asked dunk he's like what did he promise you and Dunk's like, I don't know, a white cloak, a lordship, <laughs> yeah. blue wings. And Dunk's like <laughs> barely remembering. He doesn't understand why, what they were talking about. Yeah. He but he's he so really thinks like, he's going to make this guy a lord. He thinks he really did tell him the whole plot. Does oh, that make yeah, sense? yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why he's like, don't you tell anyone. Does that make sense? He misinterprets. He what figured, Dunk yeah. He, he's he's wary of how much was said and yeah. of what was understood. When where in fact it all went over Dunk's head, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which Peak wouldn't expect that. It's, it's to be reasonable to to be <laughs> fair to Peak. Like, why would he? He's like, really? He didn't pick up any of that? All right, well. <laughs> so as we already discussed, you know, he comes down. Uh, Dunk comes back downstairs. And uh, Maynard's like the only one there, not like passed out and, and sober or whatever. And uh, yeah, so we can skip this part. We talked about it setting up, but I do want to add to this. This is when the egg is stolen. And <laughs> it makes sense that if you're going to do some burglary, you can't pick a much better time than when everyone's passed out drunk. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like they're just partying drinking. like, now's the time. Send the dwarves up the privy shaft, grab that egg. They'll they'll just the bride and the groom will be passed out drunk from their, you know, consummation or whatever. That's even another reason Plum Raven might have still been lingering down there. You can like signal Make, the door. Oh, the, yeah. The, 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 the coast is clear or whatever, you know, or be there if it goes wrong and be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, hand that? it off to me now or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. So uh, let's um, start to wrap up today. We've got some fun quotes. We'll do some final takes. We've got a few more, like one or two more questions. It looks like we've got down here. And of course, as promised, a rundown on the Jacobite Rebellion. So let's start with a really funny uh, tongue in cheek quote here from uh, Maynard. He says, Bulwer's day is done. Look at him. Past 60, soft and fat, and his right eye is good as blind. <laughs> at least he has two eyes. <laughs> Blood yeah, Raven. Raven's not out there jousting. Maynard Plum didn't join the, the list. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how are you going to see when you're past 60 soft? If you're going to be past 120, <laughs> part of a tree, <laughs> you won't be soft and fat, but you'll be even creepier. Uh, you're going to have leaves and you're going to have things going out your eyeball like your missing eye is gonna literally have a thing coming out of it <laughs> a tree hole yeah <laughs> now here's another one uh, sean read this one lord peak says bitter steel be buggered insisted a familiar voice no bastard can be trusted not even him a few victories will, will bring him over the water fast enough <laughs> it's like okay wait a minute no bastard can be trusted not even him didn't he didn't, didn't you guys rebel and follow a bastard named Damon. Isn't this a whole like, okay, <laughs> like you did already. Ah. <laughs> Plus the casual homophobic comment here is ironic too. Cause they're like the guy they're currently supporting is gay or bisexual. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you just, just come on. <laughs> still be buggered. Yeah. So it's like, can't be buggered. Yeah. <laughs> George lays on that particular brand of hypocrisy thick here because it's fitting. You got this hate and privilege and ego. They do blind people to these contradictions. Like, it's like oh, well, it's, it's that old adage, right, where someone's being abused, like is being insulted right in front of them, but they don't, you know, like they're talking about people who, who they're in the same group of. It's like, all oh, women are, 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 are weak or something like that. And you've got a woman sitting there going, and you're just like, well, he's not talking about me. Yeah. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, this is blatant, you know? It's the same kind of thing where Gorman Peak's like, 
I hate bastards except for the one I'm following. Yeah, it's like I hate gay him. people yeah. except for this guy. You know, <laughs> I'm you know like my plans are great. Um, your plans are stupid. You know, like your plan. Ugh, this guy. Like they just can't see what their the Romans own... ever done for this. Yeah. <laughs> aside from the aqueducts and aside from the <laughs> safe to walk at night education. <laughs> but aside from that, what have they ever done for us? <laughs> yeah. So and then I love this quote from the fiddler himself. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember again on the second read. Like, wait a minute, is George mocking me? George is mocking me. George is mocking all of us. You might be surprised at what some men can miss. <laughs> <laughs> Got us. Uh, Bullseye. Target. A quiet, target strike. We <laughs> called out. Yeah, all of us. Uh, Juliet says, "I wonder if the tar dreamers tend to dream about other targs and those close to them, like Dunk, or if it's just." Yeah, like it would kind of make sense if they're dreaming about things that affect them or affect their family. They would dream of Dunk, especially his, his role in Summerhall, you know, and, and with Egg and all that. You know, that was in a thought I had, too. This is kind of minor, but just thinking about when uh, uh, Damon told Dunk that he had dreamed of him yeah. in the Kingsguard. And I bet you have, too. And Dunk's like, I have. But I, <laughs> I think that Dunk was like, that was dream, like a thing he aspires to, not like something that happened in his sleep. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting how that word dream can be used in different ways. Like that. <laughs> Comment from, uh, who is it? Julie A here, um, who kind of, oh no, this was uh, Gwyneth Greenstones, my bad. Uh, the lady weeping and baby Walder Frey running around having a great time gives me enough red wedding flash fights to ser- flashbacks to seriously contemplate throwing a small child down a well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the same thing. It's like, how do we find ourselves in this place where we kind of agree with tossing this kid in the wall? It's partly because we know what he's going to do. <laughs> if, if he was just a random annoying kid, you know, he, he wouldn't be like, yeah, throw him in the well. <laughs> but... That's where we're at, <laughs> right? <laughs> I love it. How did you do that, George? How did you do that? <laughs> okay, a few things about the Jacobites. This is pretty cool. Again, one of the single, if not the single heaviest source of historical inspiration for the Blackfires. Uh, 1603, last Tudor monarch, Elizabeth I, dies and is succeeded by her first cousin twice removed. That's James VI of Scotland. This begins the Stuart dynasty in England. Uh, 1649, so 45, 46 years later, during the English Civil War, Charles I, that's the son of James VI, and first, (laughs) is executed after losing badly against Parliament. The British Isles become a commonwealth under the famous Oliver Cromwell, a name most of you probably know already. 1660, so this is a long time later, right? Charles II, to where we're all 57 years in now. Charles II, eldest son of Charles I, is restored as king of England and Scotland and Ireland and France, which the English kings were claiming, though they didn't actually have it. They were claiming it. You know, it's kind of back and forth. That's a side topic. And this, they would keep doing this until 1801. So for a long <laughs> time, 1685, so another 25 years goes by. Charles II dies. Charles had lots of mistresses and lots of bastards. So here's where the Aegon IV comparison comes in. He even has a mistress named Barbara Villiers, which Nina suggests might be a Barbara Bracken uh, comp there, which that's her does fit well. Uh, but no legitimate children through this mistress. So when he dies, the throne passes to his heir, presumptive the young, his younger brother, James. This new James, the second and the seventh. So, you know, they you got because he's ruling multiple kingdoms. So you got two titles. It's all <laughs> so confusing. Like you people think the Darons and the Aegons are confusing. Nah, this stuff is way harder. <laughs> it's un- so he's a, an, is, is an unfortunately a Catholic convert at a time when Catholic Protestant relations are really bad. Like they're at some of their worst. 
So it's pretty bad for this guy to switch sides in terms of building enmity, right? This is this causes issues. So on top of the religious issue, James is also kind of an absolutist. So he believes in the divine right of kings, which basically means parliament is to him. No, parliament, you can't tell me what to do, parliament, which is bad because parliament was powerful enough to go to war to stop a king. So they're this is no small thing. He's not just pushing aside a governing body with no teeth to it. They have they can summon armies and stuff. So that's a big deal. So James as king immediately demonstrates both that he is committed to protecting and promoting Catholics and that he doesn't particularly care for having parliament tell him what to do. This lasts for about three years until things finally come to a head. It's like a back and forth of like almost war breaking out, almost thing, but they kind of dial it back down. But then, nope, too, it, it comes to a head. Uh, James and his queen have a son named James Francis Edward Stewart, who we mentioned earlier, the dude with four first names. Now, James had a legitimate Catholic son who would succeed him ahead of his elder Protestant half-sister. So the air, the situation of the um, succession is also comes down to these religious things. Like you've got a Protestant or a Catholic is going to inherit. And that's a big deal to both sides. November 1688. So now a good 87 years from the start of this tale. William, Prince of Orange, which sounds so happy and friendly, but no, this was a very serious uh, man, very dangerous. This is James's nephew and son-in-law. He's the son of, of Mary and husband of Mary <laughs> invades England, beginning what becomes known as the glorious revolution that we referred to before. William lets James marry uh, his wife and their baby son escape to exile in France while he and Mary are proclaimed joint monarchs. And that always goes well, right? <laughs> so James is recognized as the rightful king of England, Scotland and Ireland by his first cousin, Louis the 14th and was allowed, of course, French and was allowed to live in France for the remainder of his life. James tries one invasion of the former realm. So this is kind of a black fire comp here, which, but he was defeated in 1690, about a year after in, 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 uh, invading, he landed in Ireland rather than England and then kind of came across that way rather than crossing the channel directly. It's kind of unusual, but didn't work out. He dies uh, 11 years later in France, just kind of chilling there. He didn't get it going again. When he dies, uh, France, um, Medina, this, the homeland of James's second wife, uh, the Papal States and Spain all choose to recognize his son as James the third and eighth. <laughs> so just add one to those numbers from before his supporters in exile become known as the Jacobites and the Latin, which is after the Latin word for James Jacobus. Right. So it's basically the same name, but confusing because of the translation. Can I take this chance to yes. say it is Jacobite? Oh, good goodness. Jacobite. My bad. Sorry, y'all. Jacobite. So, you know, if you were going to message Aziz correcting him, don't. Because he's yes. now been corrected. Yes. Sorry about that, folks. I'm <laughs> saying Jacobite, too, just because of our cat Jake and I just want to say Jake for everything. <laughs> it felt kind of offensive to switch that. That's funny because I've only ever read this word. You know, yeah, it's yeah, swinging yeah, words you've only ever read before. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, good correction. Okay. So in Britain, Mary and William die without children and Anne. James II's younger daughter is by 1714 also dying childless. So in an attempt to find a Protestant heir, Parliament declares in 1701 that no Catholic could sit the throne. This, except the first 36 Stuart relations alive in 1700 are all Catholic. So like basically everyone with the claim to the throne is a Catholic, except for these one couple people that they they're maybe aiming for. So in 1714, when Anne dies, the crown passes to Anne's second cousin, George, L, uh, elector of Hanover, a German prince who spoke not a word of English. <laughs> In 1715, James Francis Edward Stewart, again, that awesome name, we'll just call him J-F-E-S, attempts to uh, attempts an invasion of Scotland, 
Uh, but unfortunately, by the time he lands, the pro-Jacobite forces have already been defeated twice, and he stays only a few months in Scotland before returning to France. Like, it doesn't work out. So this is, this is kind of like the way the fourth Blackfire rebellion goes, where they just show up and they're like, yeah, let's go. And everyone's like, I'm kind of tired of you guys. Like, you guys, you had your chance. <laughs> so now that, but they won't let him back in France because <laughs> Louis XIV dies in the midst of this. And he was kind of like their benefactor. But the new French king's like, mm, I don't know about that. So in 17, so he, he's, uh, so in 1719, fast forward again, uh, four more years, James marries Clementine Sobieska, a Polish princess, and together they have two sons, Charles Edward Stuart. So the same name, but without the James, one of those names, Edward, without the Edward. <laughs> no, without the Francis, sorry, without yeah. the Francis. <laughs> the so-called Bonnie Prince Charlie was his nickname, and Henry Benedict Stuart, later called the Cardinal Duke of York, since he becomes a Catholic cardinal and the title Duke of York is traditionally given to the second son of the King of England. And that's a normal sort of it's sort of like the Prince of Dragonstone, but the Duke of York for the second son rather than Prince of Dragonstone for the first son. Uh, in 1745, so now we're 144 years past the, the origin of this, Charles Edward Stuart leads the most successful of the Jacobite uprisings, the so-called 45. Despite significant early successes, however, capturing Edinburgh and invading England as far south as Derby, Charles is defeated at the Battle of Culloden. The last pitched battle fought on British soil. Okay, so let that sink. Just there's more to this, but let me let that sink. And some people have have questioned the realism of the Blackfire rebellions continuing over so many generations. This is way more generations. Yeah, this is more than twice as long. Way more than twice. This is like four or five times longer. <laughs> so let's. It's a constant theme in European history. Yeah, these claims just keep passing down. You can trace your ancestors like with with solid ancestry hist- records. Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> so the defeat of that rebellion in 1745 marks the effective end of, of Jacobitism as an as a real political force, while England or rather while France does consider using the Stuarts in a planned invasion, sort of like as a, you know, a puppet setting them up uh, and then, you know, ruling behind the, the throne a bit or at least getting the. You know, you, you install someone in power and they owe you favors, right? The plan is abandoned, though, after Charles shows up late, drunk and belligerent in a planning meeting. So he's just kind of a waste. So similar to John the Fiddler without the belligerence, I guess. James Francis Edward Stewart dies in 1766, leaving his son Charles as the new Jacobite heir, though he is not recognized by any other sovereigns. Even the Pope doesn't recognize him. One of the Popes did before, so or at least one Pope did before. Although Charles, because of the Catholic Protestant stuff, of course, you know, they would the Pope obviously once a Catholic. Uh, <laughs> although Charles marries in 1772, he has no legitimate children, only an illegitimate daughter by his Scottish mistress. Charles dies in 1788, succeeded as the Jacobite claimant by his brother, Henry Benedict Stuart. <laughs> these names are so it's like Damon. Yeah, right. There's all these Damons and Hagons and Aegons. Yeah, it's the same thing. Henry himself never marries in his last years, impoverished by the French Revolution, in which he lost many of his benefits of, uh, you know, his his like benefits from being uh, staying with the noble, like living. He, they just got to they hooked him up with a, a salary for being highborn and just living with them. But Sponsors the revolution. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but this but the French Revolution ho- overturned a lot of that. So he was still supported by an annuity from the British crown. <laughs> Ironically. Yeah, right. Like they like, geez, talk about being born into the right family. Like <laughs> just, yeah, we're just going to give you money <laughs> for the rest of your life. And there, but, but this is a sign that they don't see him as threatening because they would not give him money if they thought this, this, there were still a chance that he would like try to take the throne or something. But clearly, no, at that point, it was just a long gone thing. 
But interestingly, by the rules of succession, the Jacobite heir today would be Franz, Duke of Bavaria, also heir to the defunct kingdom of Bavaria. So that's pretty cool. Thanks a lot, Nina. That was awesome. That was that was all her writing there. I enjoyed that. I didn't know it very well. We have our Blackfire series, but I didn't delve into this much at all. And Stephen Atwell, Jim Atwell, Jim McGee, and I almost called them brothers there. Jim mm-hmm. Atwell and Stephen Atwell. Yeah. <laughs> Which name would they take? Would it be Stephen McGeehan or would it be Jim Atwell? Definitely Atwell. That's a better name. <laughs> but Stephen McGeehan has a sort of... It does kind of rhyme, rhyme. yeah. each other's name. <laughs> they would switch. Okay. <laughs> anyway, shout out to our two great friends there as well as to Nina. All, all helping and supporting the show, making it so much better with these great takes, these historical takes. We love connecting real world history to Song of Ice and Fire. There's so much to it. George is well-read. We love history, so it just fits so well. And we hope you enjoy it. Okay. Um, Sean, any final thoughts for today, or will we just pick it up next time? I will think of something as soon as we finish. I'll think of something. In <laughs> fact, there was something you wanted to mention last time. Do you remember? Did oh, that was that the, the blood. Yeah, that was um, Who Shot Blood Raven. Or Who Shot Fireball. Uh, Fireball, so we did cover that's that. right. Yeah. 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 I almost said who shot JR. Remember from, from <laughs> Dallas, you know, and all. Blood Raven. Yeah, Blood Raven shot, <laughs> shot JR too. Yeah, he was trying to take over the. the I don't Uri know what. Dynasty. He shot Burns too. <laughs> he shot Mr. Burns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wanted Maggie to ascend to the throne, actually. That was his long term plan, but. <laughs> So, uh, as, uh, as usual, we mentioned the Three-Eyed Blood Raven episode kind of indirectly here. Uh, though more, this one we more referred to him being one-eyed and then three-eyed. But hey, those, they're both true in their own ways. You know what I did think of? Another Avatar parallel. One of oh, the yeah. an- antagonist characters who is sort of, mm, I don't know, torn in his ideas of what loyalty or honor are. Has this burn scar on his face. Oh, nice. Like another parallel there. That is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, right on. I guarantee you're going to think of three more as soon as we're Zuko, done. Zuko, right? Zuko, that's it. Yeah, I nice. know because Christina and Brian's dog is a big spot. Oh, his yeah. Name's Zuko. Cool, cool. Uh, Shay is referring to uh, Christina, who is our guest for uh, the Dublin trip uh, episode, and of course, our co traveler, and Brian, aka Brian E., our good friend. Who did Shout Westeros? out to them. An American music. Damn right. He is quite a talented man for putting all that together. And shout out to him and all the great performers. Westeros, an American musical. Watchable on YouTube. It's got over 160,000 views. Yeah, it's oh, awesome. awesome. It's done Which, really well. Obviously, as you could guess from the title, it is, you know, It's based on Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, it's really good. And the number of views absolutely helps suggest that. <laughs> Hamilton probably doesn't even have 160,000 views. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably no copies of it on YouTube. It would be taken down. <laughs> anyway, so thanks everyone. Check out our related episodes on this if you haven't already or you want a refresher. The Blackfire episodes, of course, Summer Hall, Three-Eyed Blood Raven, other stuff like that. We got a lot. We got lots of background. We've been doing this for a while, folks, and we'll keep doing it for even longer, hopefully. Thanks again to everyone who came to watch live. Thanks again to everyone who listens afterwards and sends their thoughts and or comments. We really appreciate the community involvement. It's very helpful and uh, we just genuinely enjoy it. Thanks to uh, Sean and Ashea and Rita (laughs) for being around and also making this great. Thanks to Nina for her excellent takes. Thanks to our Facebook mods for handling the business over there. Our Facebook group is pretty active. we got lots of good stuff going on there. Uh, encourage you to join our other discussion slash 
sites, places to hang out with your fellow Westorians, Discord, Slack, Flick, um, and of course you can interact with us on Twitter and through email as well. Follow me, Dancing Sean on Twitter. At Dancing Sean, that's right. Do it, do it. I got a YouTube channel also. Yeah, follow Dancing Sean's YouTube channel, his movie reviews. I know you'll be firing up another batch of those at some point in the near future, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Do you have any idea, like, um, what movies you might want to do? Or any sort of categories? Or are you just kind of still thinking about it? going to be next. Are you going to just dive right back into that? It comes back. So. I want to do more movies before I get to The Boys. Okay. The Boys are, like, more involved, like, you know, hour or two episodes. Yeah, yeah, But I'm yeah. trying to do, like, minute-long movie previews. Cool. And I want to do... I did, like, all of the Academy Award nominees from last year. And I did a couple from the podcast with TMK, or TMC, rather, uh, um, with Tommy. Yeah, TKOK awesome. Podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. Shout out and, to uh, t- you know, there was like a poll of which movies we were going to cover, and I did those different movies. But I want to do a lot of, like, classic movies, like movies that probably most people have seen, but the type that if you haven't seen, you feel like you should, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's probably, like, dozens of that. Probably everyone has, like, a dozen movies that they feel like they need to see. So I want to give, like, little synopsises of what they're like. So you can yeah, right on. Is this going to be up my alley? So I want to pick, I want to do some sort of classics like that. I might have sort of a sci-fi slant just because I got a contact and Empire Strikes Back poster recently. So <laughs> cool, cool. In there. <laughs> well, whatever you end up doing, we'll be checking it out and encouraging others to do the same. So we'll uh, come circle back to that when it's more tangible. And also thanks to Michael Klarfeld, aka Claradox.de. That's his website. You can see his work behind us and his maps and of course with the video intro and so many other things around the fandom. He's becoming somewhat ubiquitous. That's a good thing. Kevin McLeod as well. We must give him great thanks for the Valeritas intro music, as well as to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular history of Westeros music. Thanks as well to our Benjineer for the sound quality assistance. And go check out our friends at Here Be Dragons. They're doing Star Wars Rebels Season 1. Special shout out to uh, John Webster. It was his birthday this week. And last week, or the week before last, I, I... we didn't mention Here Be Dragons, which we usually do. And that was just a really unfortunate thing because John was sitting right there. <laughs> and I'm like, Crap, it's his fault. It's his I didn't fault. mention John was sitting <laughs> like he's in the Rita single, um, you know, studio audience spot, basically. <laughs> so sorry, John, but you're a great dude. We're, it was great for you to visit us. And um, yeah, everybody check out Star Wars Rebels. Yeah, season John one on Harry Dragons. To, uh, Center for Puppetriarchs to see the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance yeah. exhibit. It was a nice little, you know, two-day trip. Drove on up. Yeah, the Puppetry Arts have a really nice uh, center here, have a really nice uh, exhibit for Dark Crystal. So. Yes, I highly recommend it. It is open through the end of October. And even when it's not open, they have other uh, things from Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and the whole Jim Henson's area. Fraggle Rock. Yeah, Fraggle Rock. It's not a big museum, but it's really nice. I I like to go there and support it. It's cute. Pepper Jack loves Fraggle Rock. (laughs) Okay, everyone. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time for more Valar Rereads.